quality of my life was so much better afterwards that despite all the pain and dryness and everything, I still think it was one of the best things I ever did. I want to go back to contacts. Oh, see, I couldn't wear contacts, which is probably part of the the difference for me. I had to have glasses. Oh yeah, I'll I'll go back to con- to glasses at this point. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Damn, I'm sorry to hear that. I regret my my surgery. By the way, the audience, we're talking about laser surgery, not trans. Oh <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> How um how how long ago was it that you got the surgery? About a year and like three months. Yeah, so it's had quite a time to heal up now. Yeah. I still can see, so it's fine. At least on that front. At least there's that, yeah. <laughs> so just before Stephen showed up, you were going to tell me about how you are the whitest person on this podcast right now. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, well, technically, according to the federal government, not, it's not really my own opinion or the opinion of, of others. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> If you've ever filled out a form, you'll see like five options when it <laughs> comes Arab to race, none of them. right? Yeah, of course. But uh, pretty much everyone encounters these like five options when they fill out forms, right? White, African-American, and then Hispanic is like its own category under ethnicity. And so is Latino. And I, I've never known the difference between Latino and, and Hispanic. What I'm describing is like the official sanctioned categorization by the United States government. Private organizations or whatever, they can do whatever they want in terms of asking for information. So the five options plus the one ethnicity option, that has a specific birth date. And it's like in in the 70s, some, I think it was called Directive 15 by the OMB. And I can't remember the acronym. They had a problem where every government agency was collecting data in its own way. So you had agencies that were dealing with Native Americans, they would collect race in their own way. Uh, Employment Commission would collect race in their own way. The census had its own way for collecting race. So they didn't have any uniformity. So that's something I would support. It's an admirable problem to try to solve. So they tried to standardize it. And what they came up with was the five categorizations that we're all familiar with today. And no one has tried to change it since. Like everyone sees the options on the form, but very few people actually read what it means. If you look at the category for what is white, it's people with an origin from Europe plus North Africa plus the Middle East. So it's everyone from Morocco, where I'm from, up to Afghanistan is white. It's equally white. Everyone between that and like Scandinavia, they're all equally white, (laughs) according to the United States government. Uh, There's a dividing line, (laughs) which is just like amazing. The dividing line between white and Asian which, by the way, Asian, the Asian category is like 60% of the world's population. Uh, yeah. Everyone from Indian, Chinese, Laotian, uh, Japanese, potentially Filipino, everyone within that categorization is equally Asian. And so the dividing line between white and Asian, of course, it's the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. No matter how porous that border is, which hopefully you know about, uh, it doesn't matter like how porous that is or how much overlap there is. If you're from one side of the border versus another, that determines which uh, uh, racial category you are. I wrote a book review of David Bernstein's book uh, called Classified, where he outlines the story of where we got this categorization from, because it's it's so fascinating and it, it implicates so many policy uh, questions from affirmative action to discrimination to how to I guess, like compensate or give uh, preferential treatment to certain uh, disadvantaged businesses. It's amazing to see just how robust and kind of like unchanging this categorization system and how widespread uh, its implications are. The least defensible part by far is when the NIH or the FDA use this racial classification uh, when they're doing research on like how medicine impacts racial groups differently, which 
is so it's so fucking facile because when you look at African-American, there's such a big <laughs> variance and difference in terms of how medication would affect, let's say, like a Kenyan or someone from like Uganda. But all of that gets flattened into one category uh, for purposes of uh, medical research, which doesn't really work out. When they do research in, in foreign countries, like they'll ask Japanese participants, are you of Hispanic ethnicity? And, <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? What does that mean? <laughs> they, they don't understand, but they, they have to like collect this data in order to qualify for uh, federal grants. The funniest parts were the small business has grants, preferential grants, if you're considered to be a disadvantaged uh, business owner or, or disadvantaged uh, business enterprises, what they call it, DBE. And to determine whether or not you're disadvantaged, they don't do like a individualized inquiry. They just uh, rely on these presumptions. So if the business is owned by a minority or a woman, then it's considered presumptively disadvantaged. So most of the litigation happens in, most of the litigation is front-loaded where people try to the, establish that they are part of this uh, racial group rather than try to establish that they're disadvantaged. It's so fucking funny when you see like people literally going to court in the United States trying to prove that they're Hispanic. A judge will have to like look at all their characterizations, all of their traits and to determine if they're Hispanic enough. So there was this white woman who had like a Spanish last name and she was from Spain and spoke Spanish, but because she had like, she was blonde and blue eyed, the judge said like she wouldn't be mistaken for someone that is of Hispanic descent. So she doesn't count as Hispanic for purposes of the law and is not qualified to have uh, the access to these funds. Meanwhile, her business partner is like a similar complexion, but because he can trace his lineage to Sephardic Jews that were kicked out of Spain in like the 1400s, because he can uh, reliably trace that lineage, then he did qualify. I, I can't reconcile that those differences, but that's what the law leads to. But she could not trace her lineage? Dude, I don't fucking know. Like I, I read the, the court opinions. They're really arbitrary in terms of like who counts and who doesn't. I'm not faulting the judges. They're kind of like just doing their best that they can uh, with the law that they have. So can you qualify for a minority grant aid thing? <laughs> uh, back in the day, I didn't understand what the categorizations were. And a lot of, I'm not, I'm not alone in that. Uh, mm -hmm. Like if you ask like a, a Peruvian indigenous uh, individual where they qualify, they're not Native American because only North American Native Americans count as Native Americans to the U.S. What? Yeah. what? Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> they could potentially count as Hispanic. I guess like Peru is a Spanish colony. I forgot. But if they were like Brazilian, let's say, they wouldn't count as Hispanic because that's Portuguese. Oh, my God. So they don't, they're not white because they're not originating from the European continent or North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, they're not African American because they're not originating from... Yeah, they don't fit into any other category. So you're kind of just like left. It's like, what am I supposed to pick? I'm not Pacific Islander. I'm not Asian. I'm not Native American. I don't understand what I'm supposed to answer. So there's these giant gaps in the data. They have another category, right? Yeah, and that's usually what I put. Lately, I just like stopped answering it because it, it just seems dumb. So I, yeah. I stopped participating in that. They don't have major issues with you just not answering that question? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I'm trying to figure out like who would push back. And I've done the same with the, like when I go to the doctor, there's so many questions about gender identity and I mm -hmm. just refuse to answer all of them because similar to the racial classification, I just have uh, like a fundamental disagreement with the premise of the question. If they ask for my sex, I can tell them male, but they don't ask for my sex. They ask for my gender identity and I, and I don't have one.
Why would a doctor care about your gender identity? Uh, <laughs> Wait, seriously? No, there, like, there's I, a I can lot imagine of them in- caring about sex, but gender identity doesn't impact anything about your medicine. Uh, you would think so. You would think so. But the last appointment that I had, they would give you like a questionnaire ahead of the appointment. About half of the questions, about I'd say like 10 out of 20 questions were just about gender identity or gender related topic. They didn't ask about my sex. They asked like, like for my pronouns, they asked for my gender identity. And I think they asked for like my gender as well. It was very confusing in terms of like what exactly they were asking for. This was at the doctor? Yes. And it's, this was like at a well-established national healthcare provider. It's not wow. just like some random people. I, I'm so confused by that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, as am I. And I don't know exactly what they do with that information. I'm guessing like the administration feels compelled to collect this information. But in terms of what the doctors do with that information, I don't think they do anything with it, except I guess pronouns. I could see asking what's your preferred pronouns, but it, it does seem weird. I, I guess I don't know what the other questions would even be. It's funny, you know, race is one of those fuzzy categories. And so you could totally admit to the to the fuzziness, but it's like, at this point, it's not even trying. You're going to say there's five kinds of humans or, you know, <laughs> six. If, if we're going to say kinds at all, there's more than five. And yet to have Asia include everything west of Pakistan inclusive, right? Or yeah. east of Pakistan. I'll give a qualified defense. By the way, I, I wrote the review for David Birchney's book for uh, Jesse Singel's newsletter. It's called Check Here for Racial Oppression. We can put it on the show notes if you'd like. Totally. Yeah. The qualified defense I'll have for the racial categorization is it's the best that you can do when you're talking about a country of like 300 plus million people. For the most part, you don't need that much granularity when you're dealing with a high level. So that's fine. But the unyielding rigidity with like never changing the categorization, never updating it. And of course, there's like a lot of political motivation behind that. And also the attempt to apply it everywhere because that's all you have. Right. Yeah. I was thinking in the case of this, uh, you, know, you mentioned the woman from Spain. Like it's so some of these get get weird enough where it's like, it's almost like they want to do a brown bag test and be like, are you dark enough to count? And that's, that's, that seems like we're, we're coming full circle into insanity. I, I think that would be a better test. How? Because that's what people see when they are making snap judgments as to whether, you know, how am I going to stereotype this person? Right. That's what they go off of. They don't ask you what your country of origin is. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. Like when the judge said like this woman would not be perceived as Hispanic, that's at least somewhat in accord with the original intent of the classification. Mm-hmm. The problem then is you use that classification to try and do things like you said, medicine, yeah, yeah. where it's like <laughs> your, your medicine actually does care where you're from, not, you know, how if you're particularly tan or not, right? Yeah, most of the lobbying actually came from the pharmaceutical industry, where they're like, can you please stop making us do this? Like, this makes no sense. Like, this is actively harming our ability to to figure out whether these medicines work, because you're giving us this unworkable framework. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm particularly offended on your behalf. I read your post about, like, how you got here. As a child of immigrants who had to start work here, like at laundromat and other low-paying jobs, you absolutely are the kind of person that should qualify for college assistance, you know, for whatever disadvantagedness you're not talking about me when it comes to my parents didn't work at laundromats but when they first moved here initially low skill jobs right to, to get things started yeah i wouldn't say the the way we came here uh, was uh, so first of all like uh, i got here when i was 10 years old and it was through the immigration lottery uh, from mm-hmm. morocco so we came here by chance completely randomly and we happened to be already in the united states when we found out that we won the lottery the immigration lottery. It's called the diversity visa lottery. We had a much, much easier time than I'd say most immigrants 
because we were relatively well off in Morocco. I don't want to paint this as like, oh, we fucking pulled ourselves by the bootstrap or whatever. <laughs> there were definitely moments of difficulty, especially I guess for me as a as a ten year old trying to assimilate and also just deal with ten year old bullshit as a baseline. Yeah. So there were definitely some difficulties, but I don't want to paint it as as like a will be me type story. My parents were lucky and privileged in that both of them were uh, speaking English very well because both of them were educated either in the United States or in England. Uh, and they were well off in, in the Morocco. And so the main hurdle was like essentially just transferring the credentials. Like my dad was a teacher, so he had to get recertified to, to be a teacher in the United States, that sort of thing. So there were definitely moments like he was working at 7-Eleven for a while. Uh, there were definitely moments of that, but they were brief. And I don't want to give the impression that that was persistent. Okay. Still, it seems ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree. That's part of the reason I'm against the affirmative action is because it tends to, I'm against it for many, many reasons. But one of them is the characterization system is facile. It simplifies mm-hmm. things to the point of that it's offensive because it flattens everyone's uh, experience into this box that doesn't necessarily fit. I'm considered white. That doesn't really take, in, as you said, like it doesn't really take into account uh, my specific, the specific challenges that I had to deal with. And someone that is like potentially much more privileged than I am, if they happen to be a Hispanic lineage, they would potentially uh, benefit from that categorization, even though the assumptions don't apply to them. I don't remember where exactly I read this. Maybe it was your blog, but the idea that people from Pakistan and people from the uh, Pacific Islands are all one category of person is kind of just ridiculous on its face as well. Yeah, I agree. It's it's 60% of the world population. You're not going to get much nuance out of that. Uh, And you have instances, like the, the stereotype is that Indians and Chinese immigrants are kind of like overperforming like they they figured out how to deal with the meritocracy system in the United States and they're overrepresented in uh, in that type of system but if you look at someone I, I don't know from like Cambodia or the Hmong uh, people I think of Laos they're not going to be as rich as immigrants from India there's going to be some disparity I don't know what the reason is but it's kind of offensive to to look at someone from like you know the jungles of Cambodia as like uh, yeah. applying to Harvard and they're like, yeah, we have too many Asians. Like we let's, <laughs> let's get someone else in here. Yeah. Uh, and I was trying to, <laughs> uh, my girlfriend is white as in she's Italian and, and German. And I was trying to figure out how to get her to say that she's Hispanic because the definition of Hispanic is Spanish origin or culture. Either you're from Spain or you're like your culture is from Spain, which is why Latin, most of Latin America counts as Hispanic. But I was thinking if we go back to, like the Habsburg emperors, where I can't remember the exact one. Uh, sorry for all you European Universalist nerds out there. But there was one uh, emperor that was emperor of Spain and I think Denmark and also parts of Germany, like Prussia. I was saying like, you know, as long as we can trace your lineage to some part of Prussia, like maybe on, on your German side, then potentially we can say that this is like you have Hispanic culture in your background. And then I can identify as non-binary and therefore you're by definition uh, queer. So I wanted to give her like the most uh, benefits on that front. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Part of me is like related to this is like I was getting around home from work several years ago and we, they stopped by a pot store. Wednesdays, women get 25% off. And I was like, mm-hmm. what if I identify as woman? And he kind of, <laughs> this was before this was way more common, but it was like just a budding kind of thing. I don't know, in 2017, give yeah. or take a year. 
And he was like, uh, well, I don't really. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I was just curious, man. But <laughs> like, cause, cause I feel bad taking it, you know, t- cause people, you know, who actually are dealing with, you know, gender identity issues, I wouldn't want to like pretend just to get 25% off weed or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> but in a case of like financial assistance and it's like, this is a stupid game. If we have to play stupid rules, then let's get, you know, you guys, you guys get to pay out your stupid prizes. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's definitely in general, out of the baseline, I would support following the rules, but if the rules are just incoherent or they're impossible to abide by in a rational manner, especially if there's material benefit from gaming the rules, then people are going to be incentivized to do it. They're already are doing it. You're not really standing on principle by not doing it. Totally. Your case was much stronger than mine for like, again, 25% <laughs> off of what I met think what amounted to be $15 worth of edibles wasn't really worth it for me. Um, but you know, in, in the case of like, you know, financial assistance for a, for a school or something, it's like, come on, this is, this is absurd. Yeah. yeah and like, who, who I had in mind was uh, Charles V, the Habsburgs. That was in like 1556. Yeah. He was emperor of Spain, Netherlands, Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, like Naples, all sorts of things. This was like anyone that plays Crusader Krings know that you get this like weird avalanche of inheritance. If she could trace her lineage back to that time, that era, whatever, do you think she could claim that and it would hold up if someone challenged it? Uh, (laughs) The thing is, all of this is made up. So it's... There was an example in uh, Bernstein's book where uh, this white guy living in Washington State, he found out, he took a DNA test and he found out that he had like 2% black or something like that. And so he applied for uh, DBE funds. And it wasn't until some employee at the state agency looked at his picture, was like, wait a minute, that's not a black person. That's what triggered like the investigation into him. And they denied it on that basis. And his response, he was like, no, like I'm connecting with my black origin. Like I, I got a subscription, <laughs> I got a subscription to Ebony magazine. Mm-hmm. I, I got a membership with the NAACP. He did all of these things. And I thought it was hilarious because I think he's obviously trolling, but it's difficult to explain why, you know, because he's playing within this game that makes no sense from the beginning. The judge, like it, it was a weird legal uh, resolution where I think he didn't qualify under the federal rules, but he did qualify under the state rules or something like that. So you're not huh. going to get any, the, the point here isn't coherence. You have this, what I think is an unworkable system and people are just kind of trying to do the best they can. Uh, when it comes to my girlfriend, I don't know who would care, who would notice given like her last name and given like how plausible it sounds to just say, yeah, you're Hispanic based on off of this. Awesome. So if nothing else, worth it to jam the system. Well, there's also, uh, yeah, there's also another um, phenomenon that Bernstein talked about where the number of Native Americans in law school is so much higher than the number of lawyers, like from the class that graduates. You can like map how many people become lawyers. Uh, You can also see like for this particular year, the law student cohort, how many of them are Native Americans. So they basically say I'm Native American to get into law school. But then as soon as they're out, I guess they see it as potentially a liability when they're looking for work. They don't say that they're a Native American anymore. Interesting. Well, uh, one of the reasons we are here is to talk about arguments as soldiers and (laughs) categorization. Yeah, we didn't even have an introduction. (laughs) We did not. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy, the podcast with three awesome white guys on it. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not in love with that intro either, but it's out there. <laughs> I'm Eniash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And, and Yassine. Yassine. Sorry, go ahead. All right, go. Let's hear it. Let's see if you have enough practice. Oh my god. Okay. 
I, I was going to ask you to pronounce it for us because you you are trolling me. But okay, Yassine Meschot. Yeah, perfect. There you go. That was not perfect. <laughs> Yassine Meschot. There you go. Oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> Yassine, we ran into each other at Vibe Camp, and specifically, it was dark, and I heard a voice I recognized, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was like, oh my god, is that Yassine? Yeah, you said, I recognize that voice. Are you Yassine? Oh, awesome. <laughs> I was uh, I was shocked by that, and also flattered, and I felt so seen, or heard. Yeah, well, heard, because have- it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, specifically, I think you have an amazing voice, which is one of the things that attracted me to the podcast. But then, you know, also just amazing topic matter. Thank you. You flatter me. <laughs> no, no, seriously, it's it's great. I was so upset when like for a year the podcast was gone and I thought it was just over. Oh, yeah. And for everyone that's listening, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about the Bailey podcast, which is the companion to the Mott subreddit. Uh, it doesn't have the most reliable release schedule. I, I recognize that. <laughs> Well, that's part of what makes it fun, right? Like yeah. every other podcast, you know, it's always going to be at the same boring time. But this one is like someday you wake up and you're like, oh my God, there's a new Bailey. It's like I stumbled across some food while not even looking for food out in the jungle. I'm sure I can write a paper about how the, yeah, it's like gambling where yeah. the, the draw of it is like not knowing when, you, when you're going to get a reward. <laughs> the variable reward schedule. <laughs> All right. So real quick, um, what is the MOT? Um, so the Mott is a, a medieval fortification. <laughs> what is the Mott that we are speaking of? Don't try to Mott and Bailey us, sir. Uh, it comes from the, the fallacy, the Mott and Bailey fallacy, which I think hopefully like almost everyone listening to this already knows. Uh, do you want me to give an introduction to that or? Now nah, let's okay. assume everyone knows what the Mott and Bailey fallacy is. Yeah. So the Mott was, uh, uh, kind of like an offshoot to the, uh, Slate Star Codex culture war thread. Uh, Scott Alexander used to have it kind of like within the penumbra of Slate Star Codex, but then it got too toxic and he wanted more distance from it. And so it got, it branched out into its own thing. It it was a subreddit for a while. That's where I started posting and writing a lot. I credit that space significantly for, I guess, like my success as a writer now and my visibility as a writer. I'm also a moderator of that space. Recently, we moved away from from a Reddit into our own website. That's where it is. The, The premise of the spaces to have civil discussion with people that vehemently disagree with each other and it seems to work yeah more or less there's you know fits and starts but yeah it's a unique space and i'm grateful that it exists and it makes it fun to talk about culture war topics uh with people that are reliably intelligent and fair-minded at least (laughs) contrast to the baseline yeah and now that there's no longer a mot subreddit what is the website where it can be found the mot.org Awesome. Ooh. Does don't you have to like go through special hoops to get a dot org designation? If that's true, I don't I wouldn't know about it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, I always assumed that you had to like prove I don't know, something or another. Maybe someday we'll get a dot gov, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Even better. Once you can take over the government with the mot, we are set. <laughs> we are in the future we all want to be in. Uh so what is the Bailey then? The Bailey is uh the semi official podcast of the mot. So when I first participated in, in it, I didn't think I had much to say uh, in terms of writing. I, I didn't think I was a good writer, but I, I can shoot the shit and I have fun talking. So I thought, oh, I'll just do a podcast. It's so easy. And uh, that was back in 2019 where I started the companion uh, called The Bailey, of course. It tries to basically replicate the dynamics of the mod, but in audio format. 
Nice. I enjoy it a lot. I don't go on the mod very often, mainly because I don't have enough time to read as many things as I would like to read, but the Bailey is fantastic. Thank you. I, I try. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and also, like I'm glad to have participants with us uh, that contribute to that discussion format. Yeah, the banter is great. And the, uh, the humor is what I try to do, but you guys do it successfully. <laughs> like, like I, I, I try to make jokes and you guys are actually funny. So. <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any regular co-hosts? Because there's a number of voices that I hear often, but it seems like it's it's a pretty rotating cast aside from you. There was like a period where I was just too busy and that was taken over by other uh, hosts. That was like a couple of years ago. But I've been the host pretty much the entire time. The cadre of participants has been fairly regular. Like we have tracing wood grains, uh, we have Kulak, Jason. I don't want to like name names because I'm sure like some, I'll miss out someone that's like, oh, I thought I was, I was there too. But the we do have like a regular cast of characters. Is that Kulak, Catgirl Kulak? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just uh, now made that connection. You didn't know before. No. <laughs> yeah, like, Kulak is has become kind of like his own breakout star on Twitter. Um, it's <laughs> it's kind of amazing to watch because he's just he didn't tweet before. For everyone that doesn't know Kulak, he's an insane but remarkable individual. (laughs) Uh, The most admirably consistent uh, person that I know because he he believes some insane shit, but he's so consistent and intelligent about it that you always have a hard time kind of like proving him wrong. Like you feel Mm -hmm. it in your gut, but you don't know how. He sticks to his guns and he'll from time to time he'll say, yeah, like I'm an anarchist. That's why I hate the government. And therefore we should like hang all postal workers or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I see. That's, wow. a, that's a good example. Cause like, I right, see how you got from here to there, but I wouldn't have gone there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his, his writing is great. Uh, my favorite thing he's ever written is basically a rehabilitation of Alex Jones, but from the standpoint, the perspective of epic poetry. And that completely changed how I see Alex Jones. If I just pretend that he's basically modern day home, uh, Kulak just became super, super fucking, well, relatively speaking, super famous on on Twitter, amassed a shit ton of followers. And uh, Jordan Peterson is one of the followers. And I think like oh. Scott Adams. So he definitely carved his, his niche around there. We are here to talk about the opposite of Kulak, people who are not consistent and regularly go through acrobatics and how much we hate these people. Oh, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I like most about the rationalist subculture is that people do try to be consistent and what would you say, not not be consistent, but actually take their ideas and their stances seriously, right? Maybe the best way to describe it, and this goes into the Mott and Bailey as well, because of, of its proxy to the rationalist community, there's this implicit under, understanding that we're all seeking truth uh, mm-hmm. and that we're all kind of at least familiar with with the dynamics and like the cognitive pitfalls that humans can fall into. That's what I like about the rationalist community, obviously. That, and that's something that I try to uh, replicate and like keep in mind uh, in my work. How do we deal with people who obviously don't care about that at all and are just trying to use their arguments as soldiers and pivoting from one to another and doing all these backflips and acrobat- acrobatics? Yeah. One of the benefits of the sequences, the less wrong website, is that we have names for certain dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and credit to to Big Yud, Eliza, for uh, naming some of these uh, dynamics, like arguments of soldiers. I don't think that came from him, but like that that kind of thing of pointing out 
this problem and giving it a name so that then we have like a common language to, to refer to. When we're talking about like the acrobatics, it, let me step back. If Generally, there's this assumption that uh, when I said that we're all seeking truth, that gets rid of, of a lot of the debris when we're talking, having heated discussions and emotionally uh, invested in a political debate or anything like that. That gets rid of a lot of the chaff and debris because we can just cut through it and say, hey, remember, like we're supposed to see, seek truth. I think this is a weakness of a potential weakness for the rationalist community in that they forget that that's not how everyone operates necessarily. I often see this like incredulous reaction. It's like, but that person is lying uh, as if that's enough to kind of dissuade it. For me, I think it's always important to remember people have motivations. They, besides just like looking for truth, they have, they want to pursue their own agenda. Maybe it's financial motivation or they're just wedded to their own political belief. Before we get too far down that, how can you tell when somebody is doing that sort of thing? I don't know if this is the result of me being an attorney, by the way, in case y'all didn't know that I'm, I'm a public defender as my day job, but I, I fucking love cross-examination. I specifically love real-time discussion. It's unparalleled in being able to cut through the bullshit. One of the things I wish I had like more of an opportunity to do is have more of these types of discussions in real time with people that I vehemently disagree with. But generally there's, I've seen like kind of a reluctance from, I guess, like my intellectual opponents to subject themselves to that. I have my own reasons for why they would do that. And it's not charitable. I I just essentially think that they know they're going to be exposed for being inconsistent if they're subject to cross-examination by me in real time. Because what I do is I try, whenever like a word comes up that is potentially ambiguous, I say, what is your definition? And then I try to nail people down on what their beliefs are. There's a lot of like familiar dynamics that I see when it comes to someone that I would say is not acting honestly. And it's very similar to how my clients, how they act when I know that they're lying to me. Uh, so I can think of like a few examples. One is that there they're tend to be relying more on uh, implication rather than uh, stating things directly. So mm. uh, if I'm talking to like a client who I know did the thing that they're accused of doing, they'll try to like basically throw confetti in the air as a distraction. They'll say something like, don't you think it's a coincidence that the same detective that is investigating me on this case is also investigating me on this other? And I just say, I don't know what you mean. Can you fill me in? And they just, they don't want to say what they actually want me to, they want me basically to reach the conclusion on my own without them saying it. Because if they say it out loud, they know that they're going to sound fucking dumb. Because it, once you speak it out loud, then you, you're you kind of like wedded to it and then you have to defend it. So in that case, it could be, well, there's a conspiracy to pursue me. And that's why like this detective is investigating me on this case and also in this other case. As soon as they say that, they know that they open themselves up to vulnerabilities because my question would be like, yes, but detectives like investigate multiple cases all the time. Why do you think that you're being targeted, for example? Or it's natural for detectives to investigate the same subject because they have familiarity with you. Like, why would you think that that's, that's unusual? And as soon as they say that, they open themselves up to follow-up questions. And that becomes uncomfortable because it quickly falls apart. Huh. Yeah, I think where I thought you are going with this, and this is maybe on the same vein, is like, they're reluctant to just pin down any definition at all, or, or really mm-hmm. stick to it. Because the second that they've like said, here's my belief, then they actually have something to defend. But I yeah, like your, that's, your, that's your use problem. of saying throwing confetti in the air. <laughs> yeah, the... I was going to say, because it illustrates that point. It's like, if they, if, they, if they just say the thing, then it's like, oh, now we can talk about this. But if they're like, but look at all this stuff. Isn't that interesting? Right. And yeah. it's, you know, it 
It reminds me of like every conversation with like a 9-11 truther. Isn't it coincidence that George Bush was reading to kindergartners? And it's like, <laughs> does that have to do with these planes that we saw? Well, what, yeah, what about this? But we saw the planes. Like, it's not about like the specific things. It's about these other distractions that they can kind of throw in the way. Right. And it's all, it's all by implication. It never takes a corporeal form, right? It doesn't become something concrete that they can point to. They never say uh, George Bush did 9-11 and he set up I don't even know where it would go, but he set up a reading hour with kids as a distraction. Like I'm trying to figure out like where it's going to go. Uh, and I'm just picking that scenario. It doesn't reach that point because as soon as you say it out loud, it, you expose it as blatantly dumb. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's also related to the lack of specifics when it comes to definitions, because you always want to maintain, if you're dishonest, you always want to maintain flexibility with your definition so that you have plausible deniability. For example, I did write about Paul Elric uh, recently. This is a Stanford, I think, biologist who's just been so wrong multiple, multiple times in spectacularly (laughs) monumental ways when he published the 1968 book, The Population Bomb, and he predicted all of these doomsday scenarios. And when you ask him about it, he he's just like, it's such a piece of shit. Cause he'll say things like, Oh, I didn't predict it. I just said like, you know, it's a possibility or he'll say something like when I'm talking about like great Britain will fall within the next 15 years. I was talking as an ecologist and 15 years is a different scale uh, to an ecologist than like to the common person. It's like, okay, you're- <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> there were 15 biblical years. Yeah, he, he wasn't counting revolutions around the sun. He was counting ec- ecological years. Yeah. Yeah. I don't of know course. where he's going with it, but what, those things like, if, that's why it's always helpful to nail people down. It's like, do you mean this? Or do you mean this? Is this your project, prediction? Is it, can I rephrase your theory in this way? Uh, the purpose is to like get rid of all the fluff and just have something that's a plain statement. From Paul Elric, for example, it would be, I predict the UK, and this is what I mean by the UK, will fall, and this is what I mean by fall within the next 15 years, and this is what I mean by year. <laughs> like that, that sort of thing. Jesus. When you nail people down, that makes it so much easier to attack their position because you know where they are. They don't play this like slippery bullshit. I was reading through one of your posts from March, Megan Murphy's Speedrun Guide to Logical Fallacies. There was a line in there, this is related, and it's just kind of the humor that I mentioned earlier is kind of ubiquitous throughout the Bailey podcast and and your writing. The summary is Ayla and um, I guess uh, Megan Murphy were having a moderated debate about the ethics and uh, implication, or I guess societal impacts of sex work and pornography. Megan apparently had said like that you refuse to say anything bad about it because you're in the industry. And then quote, <laughs> when Ayla does offer to say something negative, Megan realizes she needs to hurry up and come up with a different excuse for why Ayla's opinion is still a void. Megan greases the wheels in her goalpost and launches it across the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. That, that was fun to write. Uh, it was driven entirely by just how maddening uh, watching that debate was because I, I couldn't have asked for a better, I guess, textbook example for why rationalism matters on one side you have ayla who's who's basically like a human cyborg of rationality and you have megan murphy who i actually agree with on some positions but the way she goes about it and i've seen this like reflected in comments from uh, sympathetic commentators where they say i agree with megan but this is like bullshit she made it so obvious i assume that she had like an assumption about Ayla. She's a sex worker. She's going to be dishonest. She's going to support the sex industry. She's not going to say anything good about it. This is going to be a cakewalk. Like I know, I know how to, I know how to do this. But then like when Ayla threw a wrench in that, she didn't really know how to handle it. And it it was much more obvious and much more transparent about what her deficiency in thinking was. 
Yeah, the yeah. dragon's also inaudible, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a dragon in my garage. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't detect it, etc. Yeah, and you have to set down all of those prerequisites for why you can't see it because you already know if they try to detect it, they're not going to find it. Right. That's what I wrote about Paul Elric, um, and it applies to Megan Murphy as well. Paul Elric was had a bet with uh, Julian Simon, who's just an amazing person. He's a business professor uh, and just a perennial optimist about the human condition. So he had a bet, which is always a good thing to avoid to like nail down disagreements. When you ask people to bet money, they tend to gain a level of mental clarity that they may not otherwise have had before. So he bet with uh, uh, Elric. He said, hey, I think actually like you predict that resources are going to be scarcer. I don't think that's going to happen. How about we bet and you pick, you know, five commodities and we'll see if the price goes up and down. And he agreed to that and he lost big time. It was from like 1980 to 1990. The sample of uh, products that he picked, their combined price fell by 50%. And to be fair, like if you picked like another timeline, it's possible that the price would have gone up because there's going to be fluctuations. But he, Julian Simon just happened to be correct on that. It doesn't mean it wasn't guaranteed. They discussed a follow-up bet. And it was so interesting to see what Elric, having learned his lesson, <laughs> what he proposed as like a counter bet. I found out about this uh, through Brian Kaplan. There was a study that outlined like what the, the what the counter proposal was, and it was fifteen proposals that w- that came from Elric, and some of them are just kind of weird. Like for example, there was Elric predicted that there will be less fertile cropline per person in two thousand four than in nineteen ninety four. I'm trying to figure out who would care about per capita fertile cropland. I can't think of a reason like why anyone would care. It's essentially like a collateral measurement. You're not measuring the price of food will go down or the level of hunger will go down. You're just measuring this collateral uh, statistic, the number of cropland per person. Like, I don't know what, who would care about that. What I argued is that this is, you know, this is not random. Uh, Elric knows what's going on. He knows that he can't say, he can't predict that the price of food will go up because, you know, he's a doomer. He knows that if he says the price of food will go up, he's probably going to be wrong. He knows that if he says the the level of hunger, however you want to measure it, is going to go up, he's probably going to be wrong. So he knows all of these things. That's why he has to pick this bizarre statistic that no one places any importance on. No one even collects like fertile cropland. There's no definition for what that means. And no one would care about like the level of cropland per person. He picked this intentionally because it's a way for him to not have his ideas tested. And it's a way for him to plausibly retain some modicum of plausibility because he can say, see, I predicted that fertile cropland per person is going to go down and it did. Yeah, I'm right about something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some some of the other predictions, if you can call them out in this table, I don't even think get to count as like good. I mean, they're they're in the prediction of like water will still be wet in 2005. But <laughs> number number one, the three years 2002 to 2004 will be on average warmer than 1992 to 1994. Was there anyone yeah. who disagreed with that in t- 1992 or 95? I guess there must have been some people that didn't agree with the prediction that uh, global warming was happening. So I guess it targeted those people. I suppose. And But then the next two are kind of the same thing. More carbon, more nitrogen or nitrogen oxide. <laughs> the, the best one was <laughs> number 12. There will be fewer plant and animal species still extant in 2004 than in 1994. I'm, I think I'm interpreting this right. But apparently, like, we're not going to get species that were previously extinct coming back into yeah. existence. Like, I don't know what that means. 
there's literally no way it could go up. I'm assuming, <laughs> like, because we find new species all the time, but I'm assuming he's going to say, well, those already existed. We just found out about them. So there are instances where, like, previously thought extinct species are get rediscovered. I think there was, like, some fish in Madagascar or whatever that okay. we thought was extinct. And now it's like, oh, it's not extinct anymore. So now, are we working on cloning <laughs> mammoths? That could bring that number back up one. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so really, if one more species went extinct in 2000, in, the, in that decade, then his, that prediction was right. Yeah, right. It's, such, it's so fucking weird. <laughs> I thought the well, weirdest but, one was that there'd be less firewood available. <laughs> firewood? Are you, who even measures how much trees people chop down to burn in their stoves? And this is specifically for developing nations. However you want to define developing nations, there would be less firewood available per person. Uh, what uh, what does this tell you about what, the world? What like, does even available mean? Like, is all the forests that exist available firewood? And per person seems like another weird metric too. Like, you heat a home, you don't heat a person with firewood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's so there's so many problems with this, and and like uh, Julian Simon was just like, no, I'm not agreeing to this bet. This is stupid. I love the way he described it. He said something like, uh, "This is like instead of measuring who is the fastest runner." You like measure, oh, what's like the surface temperature on the track? Or what is the like the number of cloudy days on the track like this year? It's just c- kind of completely irrelevant shit that doesn't tell you anything about the world, doesn't help you model the world, doesn't help you make predictions. And you say this is evidence that he knows that he is lying, all these acrobatics. Yes. To be fair, I am reading his mind, uh, which I can't do. I don't know what he's thinking, but I don't have any other explanation not even any like plausibly remote explanation to ex- explain wh- why would someone pick these metrics? You can't, it, this doesn't happen randomly, right? He didn't just like throw uh, darts on the wall and be like, Oh, let's go with these metrics. This is calculated. He is intentionally being evasive and like trying to work around the given reality, trying to work around the ter- the map of the territory, if you will. Uh, he knows where he's going to fall into, into a hole. So he's like making this circuitous route on this map to avoid falling into obvious holes. The path that he outlines doesn't get him anywhere, uh, but it allows him to retain this a modicum of plausible deniability where he says, look, my predictions were right. I predicted accurately 80 out of 86 predictions or whatever that he can bandy about. Yeah. Stephen brought up the Megan Murphy article. She does similar things where any sort of evidence that is in her favor immediately gets touted as look at this great study or whatever, and anything that is not in her favor gets ignored. And if anybody else brings it up, it's like, well, that's a bad study for reasons. Yeah, it was amazing. I couldn't have like asked for a better example because at one point in like the debate between her and Ayla, she says, so like this study, which I didn't even read, uh, says X, Y, and Z. And it's, hmm. she, she's very casual about it about repeating the conclusion of a study that she literally just said i did not even read and the only explanation i have is oh the conclusion supports my uh supports her priors so she's willing to repeat it credulously to her audience but then as soon as ayla says well i have my own study and immediately megan's like well what kind of study is this like what's the methodology what's the sample size who did you question she's Mm -hmm. extremely scrutinizing and again i can't read megan's mind I did ask her, I did email her, and to her credit, she did respond to my questions. But, well, she responded technically. She didn't actually answer my questions. Uh, I asked her, like, why are you more credulous about this study that you didn't even read? versus, And why are you more skeptical about the study that you know nothing about? My conclusion is that 
you're selective about your credulousness based on like whether or not you agree with the conclusion. She didn't do anything to disavow that theory. All she said is bizarrely is that she did read the study that she said she didn't read. I don't, I don't understand what that means. And then she went on a long rant about how ALA studies are garbage, which like to clarify, like I'm not saying that ALA is infallible. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's criticism you can levy on ALA's methodology that, that are completely fair. But the point here is the stark difference between how Megan treats one study versus another. I love the tweet that you pulled out where she literally says in, in these words, there is no data that will convince me that it's ethical to pay for sex. Also, all data shows abuse <laughs> and exploitation. <laughs> what the fuck, Megan? Can you pick one or the other? It, it was amazing. Yeah, I, she managed to fit that in a single tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Not even trying at this point. At least some people make you put two tweets side by side. <laughs> I know. <laughs> save 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 the effort of the screen cap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like Julia Galef talks a lot about you know motivated skepticism. If you're trying to be, I should put it, a good scout, but one of, many of us would just say a good rationalist. You've got to be as critical of things that you agree with as things you disagree with. And if you find yourself just nodding along because you like it, you need to you know be extra careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked uh, there was another quotable uh, segment in here. If your skepticism is deployed in only one direction, there's a serious risk of incurring rotator cuff injury from patting yourself on the back too much from being <laughs> from being correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. I try. To, I mean, life is kind of shitty sometimes, and it's sad, especially with with like the shit that I see in my day job. So. Mm-hmm. I take every opportunity to, I still remain optimistic about the human condition and I just take every opportunity to just have fun with this. Like I'm thoroughly criticizing uh, this poor woman. Yes, but I'm having a fun time with it. And I also never want it to be, I guess, like mean spirited. If I say negative things about her, it's entirely about how she argues. I always want to maintain uh, an air of charity and openness where, you know, if she changes her mind or admits wrong, there's nothing that engenders respect more for me when someone admits that they're wrong. Like, n- I can't think it's unparalleled in terms of like uh, establishing your credibility because I'm much more willing to trust someone that says, yeah, I was wrong about that than someone that just stubbornly says, no, they're never wrong. Yeah. If someone's been right about everything their whole life, it's, it's a little suspect, hmm. right? Well, it's possible. I'm not saying that that's not that's not possible. I mean, I'm I'm often just look at me. I'm often right a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're batting a thousand, I think many people would be like, okay, hold on. You've been right about everything all the time. Like, all right, what, what's tomorrow's lottery numbers? Like, let's 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 weaponize this shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally possible for people to be right about everything. I'm not saying that that's impossible, and I don't think that on its own is not necessarily suspicious. And I, and I mean, like you know, assuming that that statement is correct rather than just accepting someone's uh, uh, claim that they're right about everything. Like a third person saying, yeah, like I looked at their claims and they are indeed right about everything that they've ever said. Like that's plaus- that's possible. The The issue here is that when you're confronted with evidence contrary to your position or you're confronted with uh, irreconcilable logical uh, problems and you do not grapple with them or you find a way to evade them, which is what happened with Megan Murphy. You put it... I thought a really great way, like she has um, a lot of mental acuity. She has a ability to make arguments in a coherent fashion. Mm-hmm. And like, she doesn't just randomly appear at her conclusions. She has a way to get there. 
but then you said it's almost as if once she reaches her destination, she burns the epistemological boats behind her. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love that particular phrasing because it's like you built these tools, you use these awesome tools to get to a place you want to go, but then you destroy them afterwards so that you can't ever get back. Which, you know, maybe if you're in the wrong place, that's a bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm feeling so flattered for that. Thank you for having me on your podcast where we just talk about how, how great of a wordsmith I am. <laughs> but yeah, like that's that's what I mean where, you know, I can't read her mind, but this is the only conclusion I can that makes sense. I'm observing how she argues. Uh, she's willing to cite studies and evidence and data. And then as soon as like, you, you push back on the evidence or study or data. She's like, well, it doesn't matter anyway. It's like, okay, but which one is it? You can't be selective about it. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't matter, then just make the other argument. Right. And this is why I, I'm confident. I mean, generally, I try to avoid, like I said, mind reading. But this is why I'm confident making a conclusion like, no, this is intentional. Like she knows you, it doesn't happen randomly. You can't make these types of objections uh, in this fashion without having some intent behind it. Because if it was just like random objections to studies, then some of her own studies would fall under under that barrage. But because she's very, very selective about it, she knows she's basically like, you know, like shooting uh, at enemy positions without having any friendly fire. Like that's not that's not possible unless you know where the friendly fire is going to be. Yeah, I like the phrasing that you said, make that motherfucker burnable. (laughs) What what do you mean by that? (laughs) It was just, I guess, like a connecting um the dragon in my garage with uh <laughs> i think yeah so the dragon in the garage is like written by carl sagan and it's about this fictional dragon someone claiming that there's a dragon in the garage but you can't see it you can't hear it it's invisible you can't throw flour on it because it's non-corporeal it just there's a bunch of objections that just make it functionally irrelevant whether or not there is a, a dragon in the garage because what difference does it make if you have like an invisible silent ghost dragon versus not uh so i just made that connection to uh just like the roof is on fire because that's the uh example that i was using because we were talking about like you know if i was if we were in the same house and i said the roof was on fire you'd want to know some evidence that the roof is actually on fire like if you don't see any flames if you don't smell any smokes and i just keep coming up with these rationalizations for why you don't see any flames or why the fire alarm is not uh tripping up then you would be correct to be suspicious about my claim. Yeah. Uh, because again, like I'm not doing it randomly. I'm deliberately carving out this hypothetical reality space that somehow doesn't like follow the established rules that you're familiar with. And that's only possible if I'm doing it with agency and intelligence where I want to be able to say that the roof is on fire, but I don't want to be exposed as lying. Hmm. So you're just going to let it burn. Yeah, let that motherfucker burn. (laughs) (laughs) What do we do when we're presented with someone who's doing this to us, like in a conversation? I have to say, like, it does take some rhetorical skills and I don't want to just like toot my own horn. The, you need to be like, watch out for people uh, pulling this. Like I have the, I think like just the temperament and also the experience from doing it for work where I'm cross-examining detectives or hostile witnesses. And my whole point is, uh, catching them in contradictions. My whole point is I ask very concrete, very boring questions to corner them into an uh, untenable position where they can't just say, oh, I didn't mean that. That's not what I meant. This is actually what I meant. Or I never said that. 
because I have that advantage in court when I'm in trial. So I see the same possibility. It's much easier to do it in a real-time conversation uh, because writing takes a lot of work. If you're writing as a reply, you kind of have, I tend to ask a lot, like when I'm debating with people online, I tend to ask a lot of questions because I want them to nail it down. But asking one concrete question at a time in writing online takes really, really long time. Uh, And generally what people try to do is they'll kind of like ask a question and then in the interest of time, they'll like assume an answer. It's like, well, if you're going to say this, then this, but then that kind of gives the game away and the people understand that they'll need, like if someone is dishonest then that's who you're dealing with, you've basically outlined how to avoid the trap. If that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I, I don't get nearly as much practice, especially in my day job. I'm a work from home software engineer, so I don't get to cross examine all that much, but (laughs) If, if somebody's, but you do have a podcast. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. And, and some, one of my favorite tools, and this is, you know, in my experience, pretty, pretty non-combative is just to say, can you explain that a bit, bit longer or say more about that? Mm-hmm. Cause if, if there were, you know, and I, I don't know, I've, this is the first time I've heard of, uh, Megan Murphy, um, that I can think of. So I'm not trying to pick on her personally, but just to use that example of like, there's no data that could convince me. I'd be like, wait, can you, can you say more about that? Like, what do you mean? Like nothing? Uh, I mean, and, that was honest on her part. Well, but the thing is, is like, then if, if she's going to say, yes, nothing, no data, never. Um, like, I remember when I was a kid once, uh, I, I don't even know if this is true, but I'd heard a, heard a rumor that um, Mr. Rogers had a, like, bit, a lot of tattoos on his arms. That's why I always wore sweaters on TV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea if that's true. But I remember saying that to somebody and it was like, a, it was someone's dad. And they're like, I, would, I, I don't believe that. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true either. He's like, there's no way you could convince me. I'm like, no way. Even if like he came out and there's pictures and he's like, no, I don't, I wouldn't believe it. And I'm like, well, okay. That, you know, it, that, that explained it. He could walk to you and, you know, shake your hand and show you his tattoos. And he would say, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think that's you, Fred. So like, <laughs> well, that, uh, I think but, it's fair to say that may, that might be bloviating and that might not actually be their real position. Yeah. To be fair, I was, I couldn't have been older than 13. You know? So th- th- and this was, a, this was my, whatever your, your version of is of a girlfriend when you're 13, this was like her dad. Right. So like, I'm not going to sit and argue with him too much, but maybe 15, it doesn't matter. I was, I was a kid. I'm not gonna argue with my, my girlfriend's dad, but I did ask him to clarify. And he had said like, yeah, there's nothing that could change my mind about that. I think that might've been one of my like light bulb moments as a, as a young skeptic. I'm like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ask Megan Murphy for a uh, real-time conversation recorded? No, I I mean I wouldn't mind to. I I have like my real job which is takes up a lot of time. Uh I wish I had more opportunities to to have these types of conversations with people, but like scheduling it is just difficult. Mm. It might be worth it for cuz yeah, maybe. I, I know I've heard that name before. She's kind of a big name in in those circles, right? The anti-sex circles? Yeah. Uh she's a she's like a big-time Canadian feminist. Re- relatively popular writer on that front. Okay. She's like, she was banned off of Twitter because she said like, men are women. Oh, that's <laughs> why I know her name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> she was on Joe Rogan. That's the level of cachet. Yeah, but that could be worthwhile. It's, I've had like an open invitation to the Bailey for anyone to like come on if they, especially if they disagree with me, but there just hasn't been as much of an interest it's really hard to disagree with someone who's so right all the time, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand why people are, are, are reluctant. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someday we can disagree about something. Yeah. If I had an intention or a goal, that would be to make more of these real-time conversations happen more often. And part of it is just 
trying to figure out how to make that fit with my current schedule. Yeah. Part of the problem is that doesn't pay any of the bills either. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Unlike public defense. Yeah, I guess. Does <laughs> I, I never heard that public defense paid well, does it? It pays pretty well for me, yeah. Especially if you okay. get like federal cases. This is all like national rates. Like you get about $165 an hour for federal cases. Oh, dang. Oh, I bad. thought you were making a joke about how underpaid public defenders were. They uh, can be in certain, it depends on the jurisdiction. Gotcha, I'm, gotcha. I don't have any complaints on my end. Oh, good deal. Glad to hear it because yeah. it's important work. It, it can be. <laughs> I wrote probably like the, the piece that I'm likely most proud of is 11 Magic Words. Oh, it's so good. Thanks. It's kind of like a summary of what it means to be a public defender. And it uses an anecdote where that showcases how, uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's good. Uh, it gives you a summary of uh, what I do. And like the, one of the first things I say is I'm fucking useless. And that's true. And what I mean by that is my contributions are fo- so fungible that it doesn't really matter what what other lawyer you put in for the most part. It, it's not going to make a difference. And that's because pretty much all my clients are guilty of doing the thing that they've done. And the evidence against them is so overwhelming that when I meet with them, I'm just kind of shrugging. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, they caught you, you know, you stabbed someone in the presence of like six cameras and you were screaming your own name while doing it. So like, what do you, what do you want me to do? And that tends to happen uh, over and over again. And there's definitely a fatigue that sets in where it's just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm, I'm getting paid for just being completely worthless. There's I've made no uh, sensible difference here whatsoever. I want to disagree with you right now about something. Yeah. yeah because cause- yeah, I was going to do the same thing is get a chance to disagree. Cause uh, I'll, I'll let you go first, but I'm just glad we had one so quick. We were hoping for one. So <laughs> so I, I read the post and it is an amazing post, but I don't think that you are useless based on what you said at Vibe Camp. Because when I read the post, it doesn't feel like it's about public defending. It feels about like this weird arcane system that no one can quite understand because everything is so complex and weird and rests on the vagaries of human emotion and just the bizarre magical serendipity of being in this world is what comes through to me. And I really like the post for that. But mm-hmm. when you described what it's like being a public defender at Vibe Camp, that put a much clearer picture in my head what you do, which is basically, yeah, most of my clients are completely guilty, but I'm here to make sure that the cops and the prosecution don't violate their rights too much. Right. That, yeah, yeah. I, I'm here to make sure the process is followed and that we do actually have evidence that they're guilty and all that. And sure, okay, yeah, they are. But I'm like, I'm the check. I'm there to make sure that we all have rights because if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't even bother with the process. Yeah. I, I mean, I explain it in more detail and I, I'm being like melodramatic by saying I'm completely fucking useless. It's not <laughs> completely true. And, and the central anecdote in that post showcases where. I am not useless, but in like kind of like a terrifying manner. The difference here is that there's nothing, it's not as obvious as other professions. You know, if I was a carpenter, I can point to a table I just made. I can point to something material that I created or that I've achieved. I don't have anything. I just have like the negative, uh, which is true in for other professions. But like for me, there's nothing I can really point to that is a reliable indicator of this is what I've accomplished. This is the work that I've done. I suppose that's fair, but it feels like if you're doing quality assurance on brake lines on people's cars, like the only thing you can point at is like, well, your brakes haven't failed and neither have the brakes of anybody else for years. And that's because people like me exist to to make sure that those are put in right. So yeah, yeah. That, that's true. I concede that part. This is repeated by other professions where you only know that they exist when something goes wrong. Yeah. 
my objection was just going to be uh, along the same lines, but it was that even in cases where it feels like your role doesn't help, because again, the person is unassailably guilty, the, the role is an important pillar in in the justice system. Everybody needs a defender, so... Uh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not I'm saying sure, it's I'm not sure important. You know that, but, you know, just wanted to make sure that someone pushed back on your sweeping claim that you're, it was a, a bit of a joke, but it's important work, damn it. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's not important. Yet. It's more, uh, it's, there's a, I think there's like a, uh, in the popular impression, there's a difference in how criminal defense attorneys are perceived, where your goal, like ultimately, at least like in the popular impression, is help, like, find your client not guilty, help acquit them. And you do that by like some fucking maneuvering where you like showcases like uh, some bumbling uh, witness like made the wrong uh, statement or a cop didn't uh, follow up on a lead. That's not a correct uh, assumption and because for the most part, there's nothing I can do. And that, that's more I was like what, what I was pushing, on, pushing back upon. Uh, people see. assume that there's, I guess, like much more of a celebrate. I don't know if that's correct, but they assume that there's much more agency behind what I can accomplish within my work. And I have to remind people like, you know, if you want to do this work, it is important work, but you're not going to get these celebrations. You're not going to get these victories. Yeah. Your goal, your goal isn't to, you know, find out that the chief witness was lying because no one gets a, takes a shower the day they got a perm. It's mm-hmm. that, uh, your, your goal is to make sure that the, 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 the defendant is heard. <laughs> that was the weirdest example I've ever heard. What? So you I haven't seen Legally Blonde. You've seen, have you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows the chief of, of, of per maintenance is you don't get it wet for 48 hours because it, it ruins the ammonium thycoclate. So. <laughs> I got to watch this movie. Yeah, oh, it's not it bad. It's, it's pretty good. I, I also good. like uh, my cousin Vinny. Uh, it's, it's a oh, great yeah. legal drama that's actually fairly accurate. I did see that one just a few weeks ago, in fact. That's great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was like, okay, Joe Pesci just plays the same character in every single movie. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> Why fuck with a good thing? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, so you said 165 an hour. How? I'm not planning on getting caught in any of my many felonies anytime soon, mm-hmm. but like, how the hell do I get um, you or a public <laughs> defendant like you <laughs> as opposed to having to shell out for one on my own? Uh, I was just talking about the, the federal rate, but the state rate is much, much lower than that. Mm-hmm. And the volume of cases is overwhelmingly at the state level. The feds, when they, when they proceed, if like anyone is worried about being useless at the state level, if any public defender is, you're even like magnitudes more useless at the federal level, because generally the feds don't press charges on someone unless they just buttoned up the whole fucking thing, like tip top, mm-hmm. like there's no leak. And when you get discovery at the Fed level, it's like, okay, here's three years of surveillance of your client conspiring with five other people about how to import fentanyl into the country and distribute it. It's like, okay, yeah. great. What am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> it's even worse at, at the Fed level. One thing to keep in mind is that the number of defendants that qualify for a public defender at the federal and the state level is about 80 to 90%. Oh, so wow. Almost all. like fun- You could say functionally almost all the, 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 the entire criminal justice system is, is held up by public defenders. The role of a private attorney in criminal defense is extremely niche. There are some people that can make a living just like representing celebrities. And that's kind of like their MO. That's how they present themselves. It's like, oh, if, if you're a celebrity and you need criminal representation, this is who you call. But for almost everyone else, well, uh, a lot of private attorneys, and I, I'm actually one of them. I'm a private attorney 
uh, I own my own practice, but I contract with the, with the county and the city and the state to provide the uh, public defense. When you look at the number of quote unquote public defenders, about half of them are private attorneys. They're not employed by a government agency or, or whatever. That's because you can't really be a, a private criminal defense attorney and just only focus on people that can pay because that market is so tiny. The only exception to this is drunk driving. Because that's that's what I would call like the intersectional uh, intersectional crime, where pretty much everyone from uh, rich to poor gets in trouble for drunk driving at some point, uh, and that's just part of the American experience, where you don't know what it's like to be an American unless you've been stuck outside of an Applebee's at two a.m. in the morning at a strip mall, <laughs> and you need to go home, but what's between you and your house is like a $70 Uber ride. And you're just like, okay, fuck it. I'll just risk it. That's like mm. the perennial American experience right. <laughs> from the standpoint of uh, distinguishing it from how other countries live. So that's, that's one thing that catches everyone, but like the wise are just so boring that there's not much you can do. There's no like real finagling that you can do. It's pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, you were drunk, you were driving, you were caught. Like there, there's not much else uh, to that. When I, I watch these cop shows and I always hear, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be, be, be provided for you. All I have to do is say I can't afford an attorney and they'll provide me one? It depends on uh, how each jurisdiction screens. They do financial screening. The, I didn't mention this, but when I said 80 to 90% of people that are charged with a crime qualify for a public defender, that means that they are poor enough to qualify for a public defender. And the reason they get caught, uh, there's also like a discrepancy in how they get caught. One, the people that do commit crimes tend to be poor. And that's because the one reason is that the law enforcement is much more likely to contact them. Like if you're homeless, you're going to be contacted by the police all the time uh, mm. for benign and malign reasons, whether that's just like trespassing or they just want you to like move along or you're just outside and l- going to run into cops at some point. I never interact with police officers outside of my work because there's just no reason to. If I'm just like at my home, like there's no reason for me to like randomly stumble into uh, a police officer. The other reason is that the temperament that is consistent with being able to hold down a job is not consistent with, you know, just randomly assaulting someone uh, for like bullshit reasons. So people tend, not only is there, there's going to be like, I would say uh, an institutional bias towards poor people just because there's more of an opportunity to contact them, but they're also more likely to commit crimes too. I should qualify. They're more likely to get caught committing crimes. If you want to like snort cocaine and you do it in your mansion, who's going to know? But if you're like smoking crack and you do it like in a stoop or or like in an alley, you're more likely to get caught. So my advice to you is don't worry about it. You're not likely to be charged with a crime because you're not homeless and poor. Damn. It's kind of harsh, but I guess nice to know. Yeah. The, the system doesn't really apply for the majority of the population. Is that good or bad? For some crimes, I would say it's bad. The most obvious is drug use. Uh, because we're not really policing the harms with drugs like directly. It's more like, well, we're going to prosecute this because it's easier. Uh, a lot of the property crimes are are not really crimes of desperation. It's not like, you know, Jean Valjean that's like stealing bread to feed his family or anything. It's the, a lot of the theft and shoplifting and burglary are just driven by substance use where people steal stuff in order to convert it to money, in order to convert it to heroin or fentanyl or whatever. Prosecution of that crime is just reflection of reality. If you're going to make drug use a crime, you're going to have more poor people caught just as a reality. It's just not feasible to police the drug use of the upper class. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, 
I guess the question is more along the lines, is the system so bad that it's good that most people don't ever have to interact with it? Or is it okay, okay enough that uh, it, it has more net good than harm and the people that get sucked in are the people that should be taken off the streets, I guess? Yeah, so when I say that defendants are more likely to be poor and homeless, that on its own should not be read as an indictment of the system. I mean, I do have a lot of criticisms about the criminal justice system, but that on its own is not enough to tar the system. It is, I'm arguing, I'm telling you that poor and homeless people are more uh, likely to commit crimes. Uh, And that's part of it is a definitional thing where when we define certain behavior as a crime, then of course that group is going to be more likely to commit those crimes. And part of it is also a temperament thing where one of the humblest aspects of my job is having to interact with people that normally would not interact with socially. And it's fascinating to see just the, there's a big discrepancy in terms of their like impulse control. Like the violent criminals that I represent, they do shit that is just incomprehensible to me. Like stabbing someone in broad daylight in view of, uh, of multiple cameras, that's real, and multiple witnesses. Or like starting a shootout in broad daylight in front of multiple cameras. I just think, why did you do this? This was so stupid. What did you accomplish by it? And they don't have an answer for that. Especially, you know, I, I ask, like, you just risked seven years in prison. And what for what? Like, I can't even, I can't even justify it from just a pure... Uh, utilitarian perspective. Like, what did you get out of it? What did you hope to get? What did you hope to accomplish? It just seems the values are all out of whack. So from that standpoint, it's, I don't, I wouldn't say that that's an indictment of the criminal justice system that it targets people that are more likely to commit crimes. That's not, I wouldn't say that that by itself is a problem. And commits crimes, particularly like loud and in public. Yeah. You know, like we're all committing crimes by watching torrented content or something, right? Yep. But no <laughs> yeah. one gets arrested for that because you're not, you know, it doesn't doesn't make as loud of a noise as a gunshot. Mm-hmm. So that's, well, that's to be fair, it doesn't cause as much damage. I don't want, I think people like generally assume, I'm, I'm generally a libertarian, but a lot of people assume that I'm like a big leftist because of like the arguments that I make or the, um, I guess like the arguments that I push back against. And I don't want to give the impression that, oh, these poor people are just targeted because they're poor. That's not true. Yeah, no, that's interesting framing though, the way that you, you know, talked about it with, uh, with impulse control. And I hadn't thought about it explicitly in terms of like, they're more visible crimes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and those are exactly the kinds that you want to stop. That's kind of like the, the basis of like, well, what I do in my own home doesn't matter. Right. Uh, yeah, it's not just the visibility. It's also, there's a difference in damage. Like someone shooting a gun, it's going to be a pro shooting at someone. It's going to be a problem with you. You do it in your home or on a public street. Right, right. I guess by visibility, I mean, I do mean impact on society, not necessarily just before a number of eyes. Sure. So yeah, I mean, you know, if my neighbor is shooting a gun off, even if none of the bullets hit my house, it's still my, it's still a problem I have. Right. Right. But if they're in there, whatever, having some sort of sex I disagree with or something, right? Like that's not my problem. Uh, It's hard to see how that's my problem. I don't see anything wrong with that discrepancy though. No, me either. In in the sense that the system pursues more damaging crimes. No, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I I don't see anything wrong with it either. I just hadn't heard it put that way before. And I thought that was interesting and a succinct way to put it. Thanks. Yeah. Have you, in your experience, seen this thing that they're talking about now with the pullback of police where a lot of things just aren't being enforced the way they used to be? Not from my work. So there are ways to, to find, uh, to support that with data. I think it's referred to as the Ferguson effect. The difficulty is distinguishing whether or not, like the reason why it's happening, because you could frame it from the standpoint of this is 
kind of just like a, a tantrum. This is just the cops throwing a tantrum because they're not getting, I guess, the praise that they're normally getting. And they're voluntarily pulling back as a way that you can read it as a kind of like a work strike in a sense. Right. Uh, and then there's the other way to read it, which is they're not getting the legitimate support from the system that they're entitled to. And that's causing a breakdown in uh, public disorder. If you want to like support one theory over the other, you have to provide evidence. Like I see those as competing theories. With my own work, I can't say that I've noticed that. I definitely hear cops talk about it all the time in like body worn video where they say, oh, you'll be let out. They're not going to do anything to you. And they kind of like make these snide comments all the time. I think part of it is just like because they're embroiled. They, they only hang out with other cops generally because of just how politically divided uh, society is. They don't hang out with people that would push back on their assumptions. So they tend to kind of feed into what they already believe. They get affirmed by uh, fellow police officers about that. I can't say that I, I've, I've noticed this pullback. The one exception would be uh, drug use. For a long time, I don't know if I need to explain jury nullification, but it's when the juries can do whatever the fuck you want. Just Google, Google jury nullification. But the point is juries can do whatever they want. You can show them evidence of someone committing a crime. And if they don't agree with prosecuting that crime, they'll just vote not guilty. And there's nothing you can do about that. And that's been happening for a long time in, in my jurisdiction where prosecutors would you know, spend so much effort surveilling someone, like following them. They would set up catfish operations and then they would catch someone with like four grams of methamphetamine or something. And they would prosecute them. And the judges are like, their juries are just like, why are we here? This is a waste of time. And they would consistently vote not guilty because they thought it was a stupid waste of time. Prosecutors learn from that. They know that they can't convict people when that risk hanging over their head. So they are going to pull back. And they, and I even know about like, I catch prosecutors say, oh, let me check if it's high enough to charge. They're not supposed to tell me that, but we figure out the internal standards that the prosecutor's office has where how high does it need to be for them to charge it. Uh, and that trickles down to the police officers where they're notified like, yeah, that arrest you had where you caught someone with heroin or whatever, it's not high enough for us to do anything about it. And that's going to have an impact on, on what gets uh, enforced. Do you see that as a good or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing because I wish there were more avenues for the jury system to work in okay. this manner where... It's not just politicians or officials that decide what gets prosecuted, but ultimately just random people picked out of a pool and they have the opportunity to affirm a very specific individualized case. Like, should this happen? Yes or no. I see that as not just from the standpoint of democracy, but just also reasonableness uh, because you have random people instead of someone that is potentially ensconced or isolated in an ivory tire that, does, that doesn't understand how real life works. That's awesome. That was much more eloquently put than I was going to say, because I, <laughs> I, I also think it's a good thing. I like the idea. I, I, I think I romanticize, but maybe not overly so, the, the jury, pro, like the, the fact that juries exist. You know, mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, who decides if you commit a crime isn't, you know, some judge. It's not, it's not just the cop who might hate you. It's, it's a random selection of your peers. And yeah, it's, if, if the community represented by these 12 people decides that, you know what, that's a stupid crime. We're not mm -hmm. going to punish that. Like then, then the community has spoken. They can't change the law, but they can change what what gets punished in that in that small act, right? Yeah, and I wish it would it was extended because uh, if you look at Section 1983, this is the civil action that you can file against a, a government official for violating your rights. It's been gutted recently because of qualified immunity, and I say recently, meaning like the latter half of the 20th century. But for a long time whether or not a police officer or a, a judge or a prosecutor or any like a prison warden, if whether or not they violated your rights wasn't decided by 
a bunch of judges that were likely former prosecutors, but it was decided by jury members and the juries would, would hear, it's like, oh, they like fed this guy cockroach infested food, or they scalded him with hot water until his skin melted off. Like they, when you hear these things and you show it to a, a jury, it's so fucking indefensible. Like there's no rationalization that, that can save you at that point. And I think the system realizes that, which is why they, they hide so many of these claims behind qualified immunity. And you have these judges that say, eh, this is, this is not a well-established constitutional violation. So we're going to find that these office officials are qualified, have qualified immunity and you have no recourse. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> qualified <laughs> immunity. It always struck me as a kind of a weird thing. I mean, it makes sense if you just see it as a, a protective measure. Yeah, that, that's the thing is it is I see how it got there and I, I get where, you know, you don't want to have a cop who's afraid to act because they might get in trouble, right? Like that, that's silly, but it's it's like it, it got turned up to 11 and immediately got silly. I find it infuriating because you can easily find the corollary examples. Like, for example, the the thing where the common claim is you don't want people, cops second de- guessing their decisions when they have to make split second decisions in the heat of the moment. I mean, doctors have to do the same thing. So they're not, they don't have qualified immunity. You can sue doctors. They have malpractice insurance. There's a whole uh, industry set up to adjudicate these disputes. And I don't hear anyone saying, Oh, like it's too hard to be a doctor. We should give them qualified immunity. That wouldn't <laughs> pass. And I'm trying to figure out what is the distinction? Tell me the distinction. Uh, between these two? Why should one get immunity and not the other? That's a really good point. I suppose someone might say that there aren't uh, typically guns involved when you're being when you're doing doctoring work, right? Oh, it's yeah. just what's much worse, like opening up your chest cavity. Yeah. No, no, t- don't get me wrong. I agree. But it's like, I think may- maybe the, the, the damage is typically one-sided. You know, other, I mean, there are violent patients in hospitals and stuff, but like the cop is in fear of their life. And, you know, the doctor seldom is if they're performing surgery, you know? Okay, fine. Like I can, uh, this is like another thing that I do. I often, when people come up with the, what I would call fanciful hypotheticals and, and that's what I'm saying about yours, but it's not, don't see it as a commendation, uh, a condemnation necessarily. I just assume that that's true. So let's assume that uh, the difference with cops is that they face armed uh, perpetrators much more often. I'm going to assume that that's true. If you were to say, we'll have qualified immunity when the other person's armed, that would significantly drastically reduce the number of instances where qualified immunity is doled out compared to the current system. So even if you, if I assume that you're correct, like I'm not going to try to argue it, that would still significantly reduce the scope of qualified immunity. I love it. No. And to be clear, I was, I was kind of inventing an argument on the fly. I, I agree with your, your previous take, but I, let's run with what I said as if I also believed it. I also like your, your conclusion. It's like, all right, cool. Qualified immunity only works when they're actually plausibly afraid of their life, not like pretending to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, I love the fact that we just saw a sort of example of those mental acrobatics and <laughs> just, you just cut right through it. I was like, okay, I accept everything you said. And yet qualified immunity is still total horseshit. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good move. I, I employ it often. Well, nice. to, to be clear, my, my, my gymnastics, I feel like it was a, wasn't so much of a backflip as it was just a, a stab. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that agile in, in any uh, in any form. I and was, you were doing it in the service of having an entertaining acrobatics routine for our audience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is often. Uh, I'm not saying that's that's what you're doing, but this is often. Uh, I see it as a distraction where people kind of like invent all of these objections that are just either so niche or implausible or so situational. I don't know what else to call it. It's like, okay, fine. I'm going to assume you're correct because I don't want to get boiled embroiled into a bullshit, dumb, stupid argument about something that doesn't matter. 
No, totally. And that saves a lot of time too, right? Yeah. And because then we could sit there and just like debate back and forth what the exact reason is. What I was trying to do was just, you would, I think it posed as an actual question, what is the difference? And I was like, what is the difference? Well, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Mm. But I wasn't, uh, again, advocating necessarily. It was just more, I was. No, no, I get I, it. Yeah. I am trying to figure out. And know, it's okay if you were advocating. Like, I don't, I'm oh, yeah, not no. saying that that's wrong. For sure. I really, what I've heard is, is cases compellingly made in favor of like, the equivalent of malpractice insurance for cops. Yeah. And uh, I think the, the reason that we don't have that isn't because it's it's logically distinct from how we have it for doctors. It's because cops have good unions and doctors don't. Um, well, they already have malpractice insurance for cops, or at least the equivalent. Like uh, municipalities indemnify police officers for their conduct as long as it's in the course of their job. So if a cop fucks up, they're virtually never personally held liable. It's just the yeah. the government agency that indemnifies them. So they cover. And then the government agencies themselves are covered by insurance. Often you do see reform requests by the insurers, which is so bizarre because you have a private company saying, we're not going to insure you unless you implement these policies. Yeah, you're, you're becoming too expensive to insure. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to be exposed. They want the insurance because like one claim can be several millions of dollars that can potentially be like an entire uh, office's uh, budget. So they want insurance and they're much more likely to abide by that, which wow. is to me is much a, uh, is a much better, a much more workable system where you Our, have this pushback, this accountability. Our ANCAP friend would love you right now for saying <laughs> this works literally in the real world right now. Yeah, <laughs> I was interested in the no amendments in Islam thing because mm-hmm. I did not realize that Islam was in part a reaction to how much fuckery and mental acrobatics, I guess, there had been in the previous Abrahamic religions to get people to do whatever the leaders thought was good at the moment. Yeah. And I guess just to add a little bit more nuance, that wasn't really the, it was more of a reaction. It's not really the original intent because Mm. uh, to set things up. So I used to be Muslim. I'm an atheist now. But when Islam came onto the scene around like 600 AD, it was in the middle of the desert among an area that was known for just tribal religion. Mecca was known for this hub where people went there to worship. They would literally worship statues. That was like a big thing where when Muhammad broke down all the statues that were in the Kaaba, that were stored in the Kaaba, and now it became, it's, they made a mosque around it in Mecca. So that was kind of like a shift. The thing to remember is that there was no Arabic translation of the Bible at the time. Whatever they knew about Christianity and Judaism at the time, it was kind of just by oral tradition and secondhand information. So there's a lot of vexing and uh, and inconvenient portions of the Quran where they'll say the Quran will say, you know, just ask the Christians and the and the Jews, they'll tell you like what the faith is because the assumption was they had it right. Like the assumption from Muslims is that the Christians and the Jews had it right, sort of. I don't know how many people know this, but in Islam, the premise is that there's been, since the dawn of creation, starting from Adam, the first man, up to the last prophet, Muhammad, the God has been sending potentially hundreds of thousands of prophets, messengers to, to humans to tell them like God's message. This includes luminaries like Jesus, Moses, Abraham, etc. People are mentioned in the Bible and uh, Judaism. Under Islam, they're considered prophets of Allah, which is just the Arabic word for God. So there's this kind of it's not inventing anything new. It's just this uh, revelation that says, okay, God tried to do it right, but the message got corrupted somehow. Here's like the real message. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was a bad guy. He actually was trying to do the right thing as well, but his message got, got corrupted, just like Moses and Abraham. 
Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Yeah. And so they're fighting, like, how do we stop this corruption from happening? Right. And kind of like imp- the implicit assumption is that they fucked up somehow, which means that we are not going to fuck up. Like Islam is not going to fuck up in the same way. So there was this adherence to making sure that uh, the Quran was written down and there's only one copy of it and it never gets translated to other languages. At least it didn't for several hundred years and only reluctantly as kind of like a, a research exercise rather than, oh, just read like the, you know, the English version of the Quran, you're, you'll be fine. So they always revert back to, no, you have to read the original Arabic because there is meaning that can be lost in translation, which is demonstrably true, uh, yeah. especially when you're translating from like Aramaic to Greek and then back to Latin and then back to English or whatever. There's going to be some things that get lost. And devout Muslims are supposed to learn the original archaic um, Arabic, right? Yeah. All, all of them? Yes, that's the expectation. Yeah, nice. hon- honestly, that's just consistent, man. If like if you really believe that your your Bible was the word of God, like it's just pure laziness that Christians don't bother to learn. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, seriously, they're, they're going to get the distilled, watered down, centuries perverted through language rather than get like the you know the original word. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, uh, I find it fascinating, despite the fact that I'm not Muslim anymore and I don't respect the religion. I find it fascinating that they have this adherence to the original uh, word and that they recognize that meaning can get lost in translation, which is kind of a nuanced point that doesn't take place. I mean, only like literary critics and and scholars really care about this shit. Like the general public doesn't care about what gets lost in translation. Kind of important when it's the word of God. Yeah. So I gave that introduction to also say that there's uh, motivation in upholding this myth that Islam is the true message of God and has never been changed. So there's reason to be skeptical of it. Uh, but if you do look at, at least from the standpoint of whether or not the Quran has been changed, there's uh, really good forensic evidence, archeological evidence. You'd find like portions of the manuscript that is dated, I think from like 680 or something, or very, very old. That is uh, perfectly consistent with the Quran version that we do have today. So that's, I would say that's good evidence that, yeah, they have been trying really hard to make sure that nothing ever fucking changes whenever they transcribe the Quran. That seems to be true. It was in doubt, but that, that does seem to be uh, borne out. But the, more recently, I think there's more of a, I think like a, a backfilling, a, a post hoc rationalization where uh, Muslims will, they'll stress the uh, translation problem much more than they would have, let's say in like 700 AD, because back then the assumption, at least if you read the Quran directly, the assumption is that the errors were not that grave. You could reliably ask Christians and, and Jews what they believe, and you could reliably trust them to report accurately. That's what you would see in passages of the Quran. It's really difficult to reconcile that. So with this religion that is so focused on preserving the original truth and not having it lost through translation and the transcription errors, you you point out that this has some issues with the current culture that is trying to rehabilitate religions and make them be more palatable to the the current climate and kind Mm -hmm. of redefine them to mean, you know, actually soft, nice things that... uh, that Islam is totally gay friendly. Yeah. The, it's much more obvious when you're talking about homosexuality as the issue, because uh, Christian churches have been much more lax. And I'm sure like the, the diehard Christians see this as a, as the greatest sin, you know, they put up a pride flag at the church. You would never fucking get that at a mosque. Uh, if that happened, like so something must be seriously wrong because at least with Christianity, there's so much 
so much obvious contradictions. And again, I say this as an atheist. I don't have skin in the game in this. But there, when you're looking at the Old Testament and New Testament, there's so many obvious contradictions and things that you do not want to enforce nowadays, like mm-hmm. the whole ban on uh, menstruating women or like or God demanding virgins after a war, shit like that, or you know, wiping out an entire city because of sodomites uh, or whatever. You're not going to have the appetite, the modern day appetite to adhere to that. So there's so much already vagueness and contradiction built in that you have room to maneuver. But with the Quran, you don't have that same maneuvering room. It's <laughs> You're stuck with what you've got. There's only so much creative interpretation that you could do where it just becomes completely detached from the text. The rehabilitation of Islam isn't as prevalent as what you would see with Christianity or Judaism, where people are more likely to say, oh, I don't like go to church. I'm just kind of like culturally Christian or culturally uh, Jewish or I pray sometimes, maybe I go to church sometimes. It's much more easy. It's much easier to reconcile with the contradictions than it is with Islam. So you still have some changes in Islam, uh, but not to the same degree. And to give you an example of some of the changes in Islam, I credit uh, David Friedman. Uh, He wrote a whole chapter about Sharia law. One of the examples is that Sharia law, which it just means law in in, uh, Islam. Uh, Mm. Islam governs how all humans should uh, behave. So Muslim governments have always been easygoing with adopting religious mores into official policy because why not? Like it's God tells you to do this. So of course they're going to do it. Like Sharia law would outline punishments for certain crimes. So there would be a category of crimes called had, which would be like the most, the most serious crimes in Islam. One of them would be like fornicating and the penalty would be death. But then they don't want to kill people for for having sex outside of marriage. Like, not that often. Like, it has to be really bad. So Muslim scholars have, like, instead of saying, we're not going to enforce that law, they said, of course we're going to enforce it. We just need the eyewitness testimony of four people. Mm, okay. And so that uh, there was a recent case, and I think in Pakistan, where uh, it was like, a, a, I haven't read the the headline. So forgive me if this is fake news, but it's it's still relevant. The there was a, a gang rape victim where there was DNA evidence that tied the perpetrators to the rape. But because the judge would dismiss it uh because there wasn't there wasn't four witnesses to support this. Huh. That's fucked up. Yeah. Well, it's also it's similar to jury nullification though, because yeah. it's a way of keeping the ultimate adjudication grounded in reality and how people actually feel. Because even diehard Muslims, if you ask them, like, do you think the penalty should be death for someone that fornicates? They might say yes, but then when it comes push comes to shove, they're not going to sentence someone to death because of that. So you build in all of these loopholes and vagaries as a way to say, of course, we absolutely enforce penalty against fornication. But in reality, uh, that's not what happens. Also, there's another example in the 19th century England, where Parliament passed a, an act that imposed the death penalty for so many crimes, uh, including homosexuality. And what judges ha- started doing, the, ob- the evidence would be obvious. It's like, okay, you're guilty, and then we're, you're sentenced to death recorded, which is a way to just sentence the person to death on paper, but not carry out the sentence. I think it was the assumption was that you would get it uh, you would get a pardon from the king. So a lot of these judges just kept sentencing people that recorded, death recorded. So there's a writer, Naomi Wolf, who kind of went off the deep end lately with anti-vax stuff, but she wrote an entire book about how homosexuality was prosecuted in 19th century England. And 
did not know that death recorded doesn't mean a death sentence. And it wasn't exposed oh. until she, it, it was this embarrassing moment where she published her book, was on this radio show for an interview. And the interviewer said, did you know that death recorded doesn't mean a death sentence? And she didn't know. She had no idea. So she kind of had to like retract an entire book. And <laughs> that's an embarrassing omission. I don't know how she avoided that. But you you see a similar dynamic where the law says one thing, but in practice, they do everything they can to avoid enforcing it if it's too untenable. If you're death recorded, can you own property? I don't know how it worked. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with 19th century jurisprudence in England about this. It, it just seems like an interesting... Like I, I, like, the, I like the loophole because it didn't involve killing people. Yeah. But I wonder if it actually had any punishment. I don't. I think it was just on paper. I don't. I don't know exactly what it entailed. Yeah. That's kind of cool, though. Do you think this is a good sign for the eventual possible assimila- assimilation of a uh, Muslim into more Western cultures? It's it's possible. The I think like a, a comment to my piece uh, said it well, where the adherence to tradition and and consistency in Islam definitely makes it strong, but it makes it brittle because as soon as you step out of the area where you're constantly reaffirmed about your beliefs, you realize just like how untenable and how incompatible it is. I mean, this is what happened to me. There were a lot of rules and commandments in, in Islam that I just didn't agree with, including the the ban on homosexuality. I'm not gay myself, but at the time when I was in high school, I stopped talking to my friend when he came out of the closet because he was gay. And that's something I'm deeply ashamed of to this day. But that was also part of the reason I realized like, okay, this is something's wrong here. Like this doesn't feel right. Uh, I'm being told to do things kind of like in an arbitrary manner. Like, why can't I eat pork? Why can't I have sex? Like, what what is the issue here? Uh, and I couldn't justify it. And that did make it, because of how rigid the system is, I didn't have a, a backup plan. I couldn't say, well, I'm just like culturally Muslim. So I just left entirely. Do you think that that was good or bad that you were forced to leave entirely rather than to adjust to a more soft, liberal sort of version of Muslim? I think it was good at least from the standpoint is that it forced me to deal with the contradictions directly rather than try to figure out a way to sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that, if that had any lasting impact uh, in general, but it's hard to say it wouldn't. Yeah. How did your parents take it? You're leaving. My dad is still in denial about it. <laughs> huh. He always like gets surprised. Uh, like he'll ask me to pray and I, I would try to ignore him and I would, and he would say, did you hear me? Like you should pray. And I'm like, Remember like 20 years ago when I told you I wasn't Muslim (laughs) and he would just have like this dramatic reaction to it. I'm like, Oh my God, like, how could you say that? And I I don't know how to deal with that. My mom is is super cool. She's, she's chill about all this. She doesn't care. I I have much more of a contentious (laughs) relationship with my dad, at least like within this issue. Is he aware that your girlfriend is an infidel? Oh yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. There's always like a gradient. Uh, in terms of what gets taken seriously. And uh, I wrote about the TV show Rami uh, that's on Hulu. I I highly recommend it. It's about a a Muslim that's a millennial. I think he was born in the US and he's kind of like wrangling with this dual, this contradiction between him saying that he's a Muslim and also dealing with modern day life. So he never drinks, but he definitely has sex with women. And there's this weird hierarchy where eating pork and drinking alcohol is unconscionably bad. But having sex is like bad, but oh well. It's especially if you're a guy. It's like not that big of a deal. It's only a little bad, so that makes it okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or it's like more understandable, especially if it's just like white. It's like it's the sluts are not Muslim, so it's okay. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> w- would you 
prefer that it stay a very hard culture with people that have to break out of it completely? Or do you think it'd be better if there was a soft middle, you know, liberal um, Islam that people could slide Mm. into instead? I don't think it's obvious. I think it just, I'd rather live in a modern day liberal democracy. And almost all of those are at least nominally have a heritage of Christianity. So despite my disagreement with Christianity, that's where I would rather live with modern day Christianity than which is so watered down than mm-hmm. modern day Muslim, which is Islam, which is slightly watered down, but not that much. So that, that would be the, the answer. And I think it's just a matter of like waiting for the equilibria to break for Islam because it's, it's going to break eventually. There's going to be so many contradictions that's going to be rendered untenable. And it's going to happen much more rapidly with Islam because it's brittle rather than yeah. with Christianity that gives you uh, space to maneuver and massage it. I guess my question is, would you rather see when that brittle break happens for it just to stay a core hard thing and everybody who's breaking has to leave and like become atheist and renounce it? Or would you rather that there be a reconciliation with an extremely watered down sort of same thing that we have with Christianity nowadays? Because I personally kind of, <laughs> at least when I originally had my breaking away from Christianity, I was really pissed off that there were all these liberal wishy-washy, oh, we don't actually take the Bible seriously Christians. Because I, I don't know, I took my beliefs and ideas seriously and finding out that all these people didn't really irked me. Mm-hmm. As much as I am against religion in general, I, I also wrote uh, another post about how morality is accidental and self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. So I, I recognize that there is utility in religion. It tells people to do good things and people follow it. I don't know why, but I'm glad that they do. It's definitely beneficial to have some religious directives guiding people to do the right thing, even though it's completely fucking made up. Uh, So it would be hubristic on my part for me to say, oh, this would be better rather than this, meaning like this avenue versus this this other pathway, because I can't predict exactly what values are going to be held on by, by society. As bad as Islam is, as, as bad as I personally find it, there's a lot of things that I'm grateful for. Like when I'm in Morocco, I eat street food all the time because there's this core, almost religious value that you do not fuck with food. So I never get sick when I'm ever, I'm eating with just like random food on the street. And when I asked my cousins like, uh, like, hey, I, I want to eat something. Like, what should I look for? They were so confused by the question. Like, what do you mean? Why would you get sick from food? They were baffled by it. And it does seem to be a cultural, a venerated cultural artifact. Food is sacred. Food is holy. And we're not going to cut corners when we're offering it to strangers because it's just, it's part of like our religious duty in a way. That's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. It can go both ways in terms of, you know, how religion forces you to act. But I, I can't deny that there's some good to it, even if the foundation is delusional. Because my own morality is not any more quote unquote real. The examples that I cite in this post where, you know, I talk about, uh, there was this uh, post by Brett Devereaux who wrote about the video game uh, Victorio. Uh, and he wrote about g- more generally, like how slavery is depicted in video games, which was an interesting way to examine the issue. Because when you have video games, uh, historical strategy video games, like Civilization and, and Victoria and Europa Universalis, they try to simulate reality. And it's interesting to see how they, tr- how they tackle the issue of slavery. Because if they wanted to do it realistically, they have to find a way to incentivize players to enslave populations. Because that's, that's why slavery exists. Like it's, it's cool having people do shit for you. 
that's undeniable. It's, it's shitty and and wrong, of course, but of course I would say that because I'm not reliant on a hundred slaves to sustain my, my lifestyle. I make the comparison. So there's a way to measure how much energy, how much electricity, how much power a modern human uh, relies upon. And if you calculate, you know, how much work uh, as in electrical work, how much uh, power a human can generate and you tally up how much a modern human, uh, how much power they rely on. You can make the analogy that it's about 130 quote unquote energy slaves. Does that make sense? That to do the amount of work that we get done with electrical appliances and other things, uh, machinery in our normal life, we would have to have about 130 slaves uh, if we didn't have all the tech. Yeah. Think about everything that you do in, in day to day. So you turn on the faucet, just imagine someone digging a well and then for you know the rest of the well's uh, lifetime, they're drawing buckets of water from the well and then like walking it back to the kitchen. And now oh, wow. we, have, we have just like the ability to turn on a faucet immediately yeah. uh, or you know, taking a bath. That means drawing up the fucking water again, which involves digging a well, which involves all the tools that you would need to dig a well, all the expertise that you would need to, to figure out how to dig a well, and then also all the tools that you would need to chop wood all the wood that you would need to chop, all the wood that you need to carry back to the house, uh, all the time that you spend tending the fire to heat up the water. And instead, it's instant hot water on demand as much as I want, whenever I want. That's important to keep in mind just how reliant I am. And I'm just talking about the fucking water. I'm not talking about all the food that I eat, all the clothes that I have, all the all the like fucking gadgets and, and screen time. Like me watching a TV show, the functional equivalent would be oh, I have slaves that are dancing slaves or like <laughs> bard slaves that yeah. are living here that I have to feed and they are willing to perform on a moment's notice for me. I think that's how it's important to keep, to think about it that way because it makes you realize just how luxuriant we are nowadays. I spent a few days in a cabin at the beginning of the year that was heated by wood fire and mm-hmm. Fortunately, there was just a giant stack of wood out back because this was at a sort of resort-ish area mm-hmm. and I didn't have to do any work myself. But I was like, holy shit, in the past, if I wanted to stay warm for every night of heat, I would have to go out and cut down like a third of a tree and chop it up into pieces and haul it in here. And all yep. I do is turn up my thermostat. Yep. And also, uh, I want to also hone in on the point about tools because uh, I wrote another post called Considered a Hand Axe. It's nominally about AI, but I talk about how I think for like a million years, the preeminent technology was the stone hand axe, which is this teardrop shaped sort of semi-sharp rock that you can use to cut stuff down. The idea of having a handle on your tool didn't happen until way, way later. And if you wanted a knife or an axe or anything, you had to go, go to the fucking river, get pebbles, smash them together, and then figure out how to like get some sharpness out of it. You know, if you wanted to cut down a tree, it's not just grabbing an, a modern day axe with a metal blade that's already sharpened and already hafted. You have to use your hand, your dumb fucking hand, to chop <laughs> a, a tree down with a, a fucking rock. <laughs> like it's not as simple as just chopping down a tree. It's like you have you have to remember all the apparatus, all the logistical apparatus that we are relying on. Uh, and all of that just takes blood, sweat, and tears to accomplish. Even when you get to the metal age, I write about this more in detail, but when you get to the metal age with iron, the way iron works, the the smelting process, you can use uh, uh, coke, you you can use like mined up uh, coal, you had to use charcoal because of the carbonization. Uh, So people had to chop down entire forests and make charcoal out of the tree logs. And then that's, that gets you like the the temperature necessary to smelt iron. 
which of course like requires digging out out of the ground and then smashing it with hammers. And you see these, uh, these illustrations of people wearing shin guards in the medieval time from like smashing rocks together. And you have to imagine that so many shins got thoroughly fucked up for them to even start implementing shin guards for, for mining workers, for that to be a viable concern. So you're talking about just an intense amount of suffering to get very, very basic provisions. And we are unfathomably blessed on that front. And for me, especially if I talk about it from the equivalent of how many slaves uh, it requires, for me to say slavery is wrong, I'm not even judging like the, the validity or the truth of that, but it's so, it's so facile of me to make that claim when I'm doing it from the position of unbelievable privilege. Mm-hmm. I think it's not inconsistent though to say that like I enjoy all the stuff that we have, but I wouldn't want it at the cost of 120 slaves, right? But the question is, would you? I, I mean, is that true? It, if I was a middle ages slave owner, it's hard to say. I would be. I mean, I wouldn't be that person. I'd be somebody else. Uh, if but, it was me, how do you know that? Because uh, I, I mean, I went to school in America in the 20th century, 20, 20 right. 21st. So you're. Like, but you're citing, I guess, like your upbringing. Right. So my upbringing would have been necessarily different if I was born 500 years ago. Right. Yeah. And you would potentially support slavery. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So I, okay. I, I'm saying that I am not the same person. Like, so, yeah. so that, that hypothetical other version of me, uh, of that, that other random person definitely probably would have been a fan, right? But if I was given the choice, you know, Stephen, you, you lose all your electricity and stuff. But if you have a bunch of slaves, you can keep some level of the luxury. I would, I'd be pretty... I, I today would be pretty reluctant, but I do love the the framing about that. If society stayed the way it is, you'd probably be pretty reluctant. But I think if everybody else was like, oh my God, this is terrible. Yeah, it's no big deal if you have one or two slaves so that you don't have to live in this misery, we'd probably jump on, on board. Yeah, unless we were the slaves. Well, which since, since since more <laughs> Since people need more slaves than they're like since... Everyone needs 130. The, yeah, the slave to slave owner ratio would be uh, skewed yeah, towards... You know, so it's not that easy. It, that doesn't solve the issue because who is the slave depends on like who conquers who, and there's going to be mutual danger from that. Like, yeah, you know. I feel like I'd be not too difficult to conquer. Um, <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, I, I guess what I was going to say though is we had somebody who I think would never be described as a luddite, but argued a position that is vaguely in favor of it. If if you frame it in the context of like, look, we get 120 people people's worth of effort just to like live our lives and do our day to day, you know, light, mm-hmm. light a room, heat and cool it all. Like you said, everything with water and food. It, it's hard to say like we made a bad move using technology, right? Yeah. We actually yeah. made a pretty cool move. And I, I love the illustrative example of, you know, cutting down a tree without, you know, cutting, cutting down with an ax is kind of hard. Cutting it down mm-hmm. with your, with your stupid meat hands is next to impossible, right? <laughs> any, any sort of anti-technology movement is necessarily a pro-slavery movement as well. <laughs> I think that that might not be uh, – definitely they would disagree with the framing, but I think that might not be inaccurate. You want to know how I recently turned against veganism? <laughs> Let's hear it. My girlfriend's vegan. <laughs> okay. So I I believed like pretty much everybody I think in the rationalist community or the vast majority of them anyway that veganism or at least vegetarianism is – ethically correct, even if it is uh, too hard for some people to do for nutrition reasons or whatever, right? That we should ideally be vegan if we can, and specifically because of the animal suffering. And I agree. I do not want animals to be tortured. I feel I feel bad about it in the abstract. And I was like, yeah, I would totally pay more money to have food that doesn't have torture included in it. Um, recently, I have been getting slightly kid-pilled by my friend Wes. And I thought... 
for all of maybe one minute, if I tried to give my kid a vegan diet, there's a possibility that they would be undernourished by this. That like, there's so much we don't know about how the human body works and what it needs. Nutrition science is famous for being mm-hmm. absolute ass. So I don't want to take that sort of risk with my kid's health. And yeah. like, literally, that's all it took. Just one minute of thinking, I would torture every fucking pig on the planet <laughs> if my kid is 10% healthier for it. And uh, that that broke me out of it. Yeah. In fairness, they are, there are a lot of uh, 100% vegan kids that have been vegan from the day they were born. And yeah. they seem to be doing okay. Uh, and I have to accept that, that that's a valid re- uh, result. But there's part of me that's still uh, reluctant based of like based on the vagaries of uh, nutritional science that you point out. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there are since... like li- real life examples that demonstrate that this is is doable. But I know that like it, I I was a vegetarian for years, and you know eventually was at a doctor for something unrelated. And I was like not dangerously anemic, but uh, way more anemic than one should be in their whatever early twenties. And uh, I have the access to the internet and everything. And I was doing it wrong and I was feeding myself, right? Like, I mean, if my kid weighs 10 pounds less and is one inch shorter than he could have been otherwise, that's a huge fucking deal for life <laughs> outcomes. <laughs> yeah, it is. And also yeah. don't forget, like the only reason that veganism is plausible is because of technological progress. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> we'll get to a point where we can be vegan, uh, but we're not there yet. Right. Like you get all this pea protein and hemp protein powder. Like that's not, it's just not possible. It's not tenable before. You would, yeah. you would die if you tried to do a vegan diet, like even as like late as, I don't know, the early 20th century, because you just didn't have the food technology to, to properly sustain you. It's definitely right. getting better. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the to point in time where we can be vegan easily without having to worry about nutrition and without having to pay a lot more. I, this is not my crux at all. But also one of the things I thought is that like being vegan is both more expensive and takes a lot more effort to do correctly. And that is both money and effort that I could be spending on educating my kid or really doing much of anything else. And uh, I would rather do that. Yeah, that's going to be the crux. It's it's not moral arguments as how convenient is this to do. It's the same mm-hmm. way. It's the same reason why slavery became untenable around the same time worldwide, the 19th mm-hmm. century, where the enforcement costs of policing slavery, the risk of revolt, the the underutilization of human capital, especially when you educate humans, that that was just like a brute force, a brute like technological question that solved the issue. You could say it's morality. It's like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't realize that holding someone in bondage was wrong. I, I won't <laughs> do that anymore. But no, it was just became it, it was too annoying to sustain. Yeah. Technology made slavery too inconvenient in in comparison to the alternatives. Fossil fuels specifically, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love technology. The last, the last note I'll throw out on the on the food thing because I, I ethically I'm a vegetarian slash vegan, but I'm in practice not. But it's like I, I just know that I'm doing it wrong. So I'll, I, but what I do is I, I do consume less meat and I do consume less uh, harmful animal products than I did because people talk about being a vegetarian or being a vegan. You can actually just do less bad and you know more yeah. good by just having a little less or whatever, right? You know, if, if you're totally turned off from like, yeah, my kid's not going to be full vegan. It's like, yeah, but you can maybe not have cow milk or something because cow milk is a nightmare factory. Maybe yeah. I'll have a little, a little slavery rather than all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, it, as <laughs> as uh, as rough of a phrasing as that is, I mean, you know, a little is is less bad than than a lot. So that's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, on this podcast, we have come out against slavery and pro technology. So we're taking <laughs> taking the spicy issues here. Yeah, bold step. Yeah, we prefer yeah. we prefer enslaving electrons rather than people. 
Yes. Until we find oh. out that electrons are sentient and been screaming oh, at us this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> the, the electron suffering I cannot take seriously. Right right after sentient grass. Yeah. I feel like uh, that's not the worst place to end it. You'll want to call it? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. We, cool. we, gotta, we can't have the podcast go on forever anyway, so yes. <laughs> yeah, right. see, Thanks for this, having me on. This, this was, was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. If Once you're again, amenable to coming back to talk more, I mean, this, this was a really fun conversation. We'll find, uh, I'm sure we can find other things to talk about. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Great. It's uh, themot.org and thebaileypodcast.substack.com. Yes. Yeah, and also most of my writing, I mean, most of what I do is on my Substack itself. I'm sure I'll send you the links for everything I mentioned. Yeah, and the Substack I- is uh, why this mess calls. <laughs> do your wonderful yeah. pronunciation again for us why com. i don't know what's so difficult about that yeah and if you can't spell that from hearing it you're racist so yeah, yeah. you are absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. all right thanks awesome. again Zine. all right thank you all bye bye steven welcome back to the last quarter of the show that's right and we're doing you know we're, we're doing this uh i don't know one or three weeks after our conversation with yasin it's been quite a while, yeah. It time flows weirdly, so. Yep. But but you know it doesn't flow weirdly. <laughs> the smooth transition to uh, less wrong posts. What about the smoother transition to some feedback, though? Oh yeah, you bet. Okay, cool. Uh, so these are both from the previous episode where we had Alex on to talk about absurdism and the meaning of life. Uh, the first feedback is from me, actually. I one of the things I brought up is that having roles and narratives is great but you don't want to be locked into one forever but also you don't want to just be flipping back and forth like crazy through roles because then that's basically the same thing as not having any roles at all what's even the point right and it's exhausting well possibly and it's exhausting too the thing that occurred to me after recording a few days later was that actually this sort of thing happens all the time both in real life and in narrative fiction and when it happens in fiction we call it a character arc when a person learns and grows and over the course of a extended story, uh, sometimes involving a major quest of some kind, they become a different type of person. They grow in some way. And I was actually thinking that could be a very good way to implement that in real life because you don't necessarily want someone in your community to change drastically on a dime every day. But like if someone really needs to change and you can see that and there is an extended almost personal quest, a long period of time where they're going through changes, then you can go to being like, okay, well, I guess you've moved on from that phase of your life and now we're doing this new thing. And you can have a character arc in real life to take on different responsibilities and abandon old responsibilities as needed with the community's, you know, buy-in. I like that a lot. And framing it as a character arc works really well. You know, it's like you grow to better understand, like, uh, to better suit your new circumstances, you know, whatever they yeah. might be. And uh, phrased in like the nice storybook kind of way, it's the sort of like, I don't know, assuming the the mantle of whatever usual, usually a position of something awesome or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that yeah, I can dig it. Excellent. All right. I, I hope that um, I hope we hear back from Alex to hear what he thinks about this idea. I like it. Yeah. I hope yeah. he's on board. Uh, Also, we have some feedback from Gabriel in the server saying that as someone who is very religious most of his adult life, having even an awesome sounding meaning isn't all it's cracked up to be. For example, Christians don't worry about the meaning of life, but they still have all the usual angst about what should I do with my life? 
In more devout people, the worries are compounded by the additional worry, I know what I want to do with my life, but what does God want me to do with it? <laughs> Honestly, I think the nihilists have are in a more comforting headspace than the devout believers. Goddamn nihilists. <laughs> Say what you want, man. At least it's neat, those. Yeah, right? <laughs> Perhaps they are the God-blessed nihilists, honestly. Um, I, I like that. I mean, I, I think there might be something different existentially, like with what should I do with my life and why am I here? Like, what is the point of this? Although I suppose if you're Christian, those questions still occur to you. You're, you know, why did God make the world in the first place? Um, yeah. It's just, it's, it's framed differently. Yeah, no, I, I it's, it's reassuring to hear that, uh, you know, the religious people aren't super ahead of the curve on this. I think, I think they profess yeah. to be right, but they have, yeah, it's almost like they have the same queries. They just disguise them. Yeah. You know, that, that, that reminds me, I feel like one of our less wrong posts was disguised queries. In fact, it is the first one. Well, Shall we jump into it? Would you look at that? <laughs> it's l- almost like this wasn't an accident. Well, we got more, more blegs and rubes. Yeah. Uh, can I go over, l- let me talk for a little bit about um, the, the general concept at the, for the first half of the post. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, we got the blegs and rubes from the previous episode. Uh the the sorter, who is you in this case, you notice that the blegs and rubes are different in ways besides color and shape. Blegs have fur, uh, rubes are smooth, blegs flex slightly, rubes are hard, blegs are opaque, rubes are slightly translucent. Uh, but then you encounter a purple bleg, and it's purple egg-shaped object, actually, because a bleg is blue, right? But aside from being purple... Everything else about it is like a bleg. It's egg-shaped, it's furred, it's flexible, it's opaque. But you want to be sure, so you call over Susan the Senior Sorter. And you're like, all right, how did they decide to call blegs blegs? And she, Susan is kind of a smartass. She starts out by saying, well, I guess you could call the red cube-shaped object blegs and the blue one, blue egg-shaped ones rubes, but it just seemed easier to remember this way. Because because Susan Susan's a troll. Yeah, she's uh. I- uh, and you know, nice alliterative name too. Yes, maybe that is a common feature of trolls. We got to watch out for people with alliterative names, like Clark Kent or um, Bruce Banner. I mean, we can read Richards, Peter Parker. Yep, yep. Uh, the, all the, trolls. The list goes on. <laughs> so you ask Susan. Suppose a totally mixed up thing came off the conveyor, like orange, and uh, it's a sphere and it has tentacles. And she, this goes back and forth for a while because she's she's like your dad. She's a troll. But eventually you get to the fact that uh, blegs have small nuggets of vandium ore and rubes have shreds of palladium, both of which are useful industrially. Wait, why is my dad a troll? Because he makes dad jokes. Oh, I, I missed her just. Oh, like Susan. Gotcha. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought this related to the name thing. And I was like, my name doesn't alliterate. Um, no, no. Okay. All right. Well, yes. So. The, the real goal here is like, you know, we're looking for vanadium and palladium. Yeah. It's like, well, why didn't you just say so? It's like, well, because they look like this on the outside. And breaking right. open, I'm assuming, would be expensive and or dangerous. Yeah. They, they have an actual machine that will tell you what's in, if there's vin, vanadium or palladium in there. But uh, I, I think, yeah, it must be expensive or time consuming or something because they only use it in rare edge cases. So, uh, I mean, so they, they get a bit more into this, like... Uh, the 98% of blegs contain palladium, but 2% contain palladium. 
To be precise, Susan continues, around 98% of blue egg-shaped, furred, flexible, opaque objects contain vanadium, and for usual blegs, maybe a difference of percentage, like 95% of purple blegs contain vanadium, 92% of hard blegs, vanadium, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So it's not as straightforward as uh, one would like it to be, but it's all of this is dancing around like really f- interesting, fun questions. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's masked, and I feel like just because we've been doing these slowly, we've been talking about nothing but blegs and ribs for like two months. But I know it hasn't been that long. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think the most interesting question is the one that he asks next. Here it says, "Suppose you find a bleg that is a perfect bleg in every way: blue, egg-shaped, furred, flexible, opaque. Everything about it is bleggish." But for kicks, you take it over to the scanner, and inside it does not have vanadium. It has palladium. It's one of those rare 2%. So is it a bleg? And the thing is, no matter what you, no matter what answer you come to, you're still putting it in the rube uh, bin for your job. Because for your job, you want to know what ore is inside it, because that, that is... That is what they want. So you're going to put it in a root bin so it can be processed uh, like anything else that has palladium in it. But what if like you want to know whether it's furred or you want to know whether it can stack in a crate easily uh, like a cube would? <laughs> you, for, for those purposes, it's a bleg. In every other way, it's a bleg. So if you want to know anything about it aside from what ore it contains, it's a bleg. And the only reason you would ever call it a rube is if you are using it for for ore purposes. So uh, that's that's the ultimate point of the post, that the question, is the object a bleg, is usually, or it may be a stand-in for different queries on different occasions. And if it weren't standing in for some query, you don't really have a reason to care, right? Yeah. I'm trying to think of like an actual example that isn't like super inflammatory, but like, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, is uh, is ice cream food? Like, or Skittles food? Like yeah. you, you can eat them, sure. You digest them, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, do you get any nutrients? No. Like you get it, some calories. Sometimes all you need. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's like, oh no. You, well, you can survive by eating food. It's like, well, you die if you ate Skittles for too long. But you know, like bad example. But you know, it, it's the kind of thing of like it. It turns out that what you're not really curious if it's food or not. You're curious of like, is is this what I do? I want to eat this right now or something, right? Yeah. You're, you're disguising that for another query. Yeah. Yeah. As Elias says, the rational part is if in the course of an argument, you pull up a dictionary mm-hmm. and look up the definition of atheism or religion or blag, because how could a dictionary possibly decide whether an empirical cluster of atheists is really substantially different from an empirical cluster of theologians? How can reality vary with the meaning of a word? The points in think space don't move around when we redraw a boundary. I think the important part of that is like, this is just about, you know, when philosophers argue back and forth, it's like, the important thing is let's define our terms, right? Or as we do in, in rationalist circles, which saves us, I think, a lot more time, like centuries, we just say, let's just taboo that word. <laughs> yeah. I think it's good to get to like, what do you actually care about? If you're asking someone to define a term, I think, uh, and Yassine was talking about this earlier too. He actually, he often asks people to define what they mean specifically and narrowly, but we do that mainly so that we can get to the stuff we care about. If we could just somehow short circuit directly to what we care about, then we wouldn't even have to bother with that that much with the definitions, right? Yeah. Free will is not a good example. Like, mm. it, I remember, uh, long story short, pe- people argue back and forth about like, well, no, I, I have free will because I decided to raise my left hand or whatever. And yeah. so it's like, all right, well, then if you don't use the word free will, you're, you're basically asking, can I do whatever I want? And it's like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You can't fly without 
you know, mechanical <laughs> assistance, but, you know, you can raise whichever arm you prefer, you know? I think free will is a great example, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, yeah. Pe- people don't often realize that their argument about where to draw, people don't realize that their argument about where to draw a definition, definitional boundary is really a dispute over whether to infer a characteristic shared by most things inside an empirical cluster. Hence the yeah. phrase disguised query. Right. So that's, I think that's the interesting part about these definition arguments. It's that, can you infer something about a thing based on the label that's in it? That That is what the argument is about. And some people do want to infer certain things and some others don't. And uh, that's why we get the, the fights. Yeah. All right. Uh, neural categories is the next let's wrong post here. Yeah. This one had some, some charts in it that will make it hard to talk about. Um, mm-hmm or I don't know what you call these things, illustrations uh, that we'll, we'll talk around and see if it conveys anything at all. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Yeah. Before we get to the cool charts, one of the things earlier up top is that Eliezer says, I can't derive the differential equations for gradient descent in a non-recurrent multilayer network with a sigmoid units, which is actually a lot easier than it sounds in parentheses. This really jumped out at me because when I first read this, I was like, okay, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. I now know what the hell he's talking about because it's basically the 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 bones of how LLMs work. And it's amazing that he said this in 2008. I guess the the basic structure was set up even back then and we just needed more compute. And probably some more understanding. Mm-hmm. And transformers. I think transformers were the big difference. Yeah, the, the transformers and chips that you use to run these things on are different than the ones we use to run our computers. Mm-hmm. But isn't that crazy? That's nuts. Yeah, it's startlingly apropos for today. Yeah. I remember the disguised query I was going to mention. Oh, what's up? It was, uh, is Martin Luther King Jr. a criminal? Ah, uh, yes. The standard non-central... Uh, non-central... Non-central fallacy. Thank right? you. Which is, which is yeah. a perfect kind of... Um, I can't think of the word for this. It's it's like the, the opposite of a disguised query, right? Where a disguised yes. query is you're asking the wrong question. A non-central fallacy is where you're you're grabbing a you're basically grabbing the disguise and shoving it into the category, right? You're finding something that technically matches the definition, but is not included in the thing space because everybody knows it's not what the Martin Luther King thing that we're actually talking about is the question the statement Martin Luther King was a criminal, which is technically true. He, he broke segregation laws and was put in jail from it and famously wrote a letter from a Birmingham, Alabama jail uh, while he was in jail. But we don't think of him as a criminal because when we think of criminals, we think of people who are burning the commons and making society worse. Uh, and he did the opposite of that. It's the fact that the laws were unjust. That was the problem in his case. Right. And I, I love that example because it was Scott Alexander's uh, main, main example for the worst argument in the world. Yes. Which is the non-central fallacy. Yeah, which um, is where you specifically are exploiting this this problem of e- definitions and thing-space clusters. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so thing-space clusters for Blegs and Rubes, you've got... Again, without the pictures, this might be kind of just hard to, to... We can talk about it, but I'm not sure how... Well, let us know if it's any use to hear about it. But you've got color, shape, texture, luminance, and interior. And yeah. network one, which looks like... Uh, like a pentagram. Um, yeah, it's these it's these five dimensions, each represented as a point with a plus or a minus, like color blue, red, blue is plus, red is minus, and each point is connected to every other point. So it's a network that's all interconnected. Exactly. And what's cool about it, so like if uh, 
you know, if it's got, if it is blue and it's egg shaped and it's furred, like all of those nodes light up. Right. Mm -hmm. And they count as evidence for, uh, blackness. Yeah. The more those nodes light up, the more the other nodes in that network are also implied to be lit up. Yeah. There was another cool bit in here where he talked about like, since those are evidence for each other, they, they, you would, you could expect that node to kind of bounce back and forth as those evidences Mm -hmm. reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being an, like an explicit problem with training models like this. Yeah. Or, or, you know, in the distant way that me, a non, del- you know, the furthest thing from an expert heard about it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's blue. That means it's probably furred. Oh, it's furred. That means it's probably blue. And they keep updating each other. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and the post says the network may be said to expect, though it has not yet seen, that it'll glow in the dark and contain vanadium. So network one exhibits this behavior, even though there's no node anywhere in there marked bleg. There's no central node that says whether it's a bleg or not. The judgment is just implicit in the whole network, which is really cool, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's what I like about it, too, is when, I don't know you give yourself a minute to kind of just look at this and think of stuff. This is mm. more or less, at least how my brain actually works. Mm. You know, like I, I have the short handles, but then if I, if I'm trying not to use those, this is yeah. what's happening. Right. Right. Yeah. There's and and what I love about the, the, you know, the, the model of like the, the thing space or even like this little simple diagram here is it's, I can kind of imagine neurons in my brain lighting up that way. I know that's not how it works. Yeah. But that, that's kind of how I picture it. Me too. Yeah, Yeah. it's cool. Uh, He says, the problem with network one here is that it's slow, chaotic, and it may double count evidence. Plus, if we try to scale it up, it requires N squared connections where N is the total number of observables. So if you put in one more node, like uh, whether it contains vanadium, uh, then it has an extra connection to every single node there. And every additional node you add, it gets more complicated and takes more time to process. It's, It's kind of a problem. Uh, network two is this other diagram that we have not talked about yet. And that diagram is different because it has a single node right in the middle that says bleg or rube. And each of the characteristics connect to it and just it, not to each other. So it looks more like a, a central thing with a bunch of little nodes attached to it with a single line rather than a large interconnected network. Uh, And each characteristic, when it's observed, lights up. And then when enough ones are observed, the central one lights up. Or perhaps, you know, the central one lights up to some partial degree. And how much it's lit up, or whether or not it's lit up, tells you uh, the ones that you weren't observed, whether they should count or not. So, like, if you see blue and egg-shaped and furred, then bleg lights up. And you can uh, assume that it is, uh, what was it? Uh, glow in the dark and uh, contains vanadium. Yeah, I I kind of picture like another example of this would be picturing like the central node being bird, and like a bird isn't actually a thing, right? Right. Uh, you know, feathers, the ability to fly, uh, beaks, you know, kinds of feet. Those are actual things you can point at. Mm-hmm. And so that the, the the central node is like the is the category. Yeah, and a category isn't a, a thing you can go out and and touch or pet at the Denver Zoo. Uh, right. So it's, it's, a. Uh, but you see something with enough of those and you're like, yeah, that's a bird. Right. You, you, the the yeah. node lights up in the middle and you're like, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eliezer says that network one is not more useful on most real world problems where you rarely find an animal stuck halfway between a cat and a dog. Outside of that 90s cartoon. 
Cat dog? Cat dog. <laughs> That's right. Maybe those 2000s. Either way. I don't, I think it was probably 2000s actually. Yeah. So yeah. Th- this is like the fun, you know, we go back to Aristotle. Socrates is a man, all human, or Socrates is a human. He's being more uh, inclusive than Aristotle was. Uh, mm-hmm. All humans are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. And the thing is, is like, if Socrates wasn't mortal, he'd still be human. He'd just be a human that isn't mortal. Right. Yeah. It, it, that, that's not what Yudakaisky goes on to say here exactly, but that, that's the thing is like, mm-hmm. y- y- we're just actually allowed to say that. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is the difference between the, the network and the one and two, right? Or is it? I don't know. It may be. I don't think network one is necessarily Aristotelian. Um, it's just, yeah. it's, uh, you know, and now I look at network two and I'm like, oh, that's how my brain actually works. So, you know, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it annoyingly works both ways. <laughs> I think it probably works the the second way by default, but you can make it run the first way when you're like, okay, this is an edge case kind of thing. You're right. If you if I tried to think about it kind of a priori, like I would assume it's the second case because that has that requires much less uh, as as is the buzzword these days, compute. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it's like, well, it, our brains are are surprisingly big and and convoluted, but that we've got to constrain that somehow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just let's let's make the central node, the concept node and have it light up more or less with the with the actual like observables changing, right? Yeah. And that also kind of ex- I mean, which one would make you react faster to a tiger? Probably the second one. Yes, the second one is the one that you want for speed. Right. You you see you see flash of talons and you're like, I don't care about anything else, here comes a tiger, right? Mhm. Mhm. Or something tigery enough to kill and eat me. Right. Yeah. yeah, there's enough in common with the thing that eats me that I'm going to run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he says, how did Aristotle know that Socrates was human? Well, he had no feathers and broad nails and walked upright and spoke Greek and generally was shaped like a human and acted like one. So the brain decides once and for all that Socrates is human and from there infers that Socrates is mortal like all other humans thus yet observed. Kind of feels like cheating. Why so? I mean, well, because because he's pretending like he did this, you know, from from first principles. Oh, you mean Aristotle? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> sufficiently advanced technique is indistinguishable from cheating. <laughs> but yeah, at the end of the day, he's, you know, he was doing his best to try and figure out, you know, how humans categorize stuff is, uh, you know, one of these days when I, if, if we live in the, if we live to the future where we live forever or live really long, I really want to get really deeply acquainted with distantly related languages to English like not French mm-hmm. or whatever, but like whatever, um, you know, uh, ancient ancient Chinese or something, right? Yeah. And then do all the philosophy in that language, and see if these Why? kinds of problems, if these kinds of problems uh, arise. Huh. Okay. I, I'm sure some of them do, but some of them maybe don't. I, I think be. it was Eliezer I heard somewhere once say that he's unaware of a language where it's impossible to sta- think stupid thoughts. <laughs> but I wonder if some of them just avoid these kinds of of weird categorical tricks. I, as long as you have a human brain, I think they would all have category issues like that because human brains think in categories, you which know. is, I think, reasonable because many things fall into categories in the real world. Yeah, but I wonder if like just the way that people talk about them don't don't work this way or not. But maybe they do. If anyone is is familiar with any sort of philosophy stuff and is on our Discord, at me with any uh, insight there. I'm curious. I should mention that uh, earlier today, it was, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, we recorded a uh, Bayes Blast. That mm. I I was editing here and there and it you know it really I just dragged my feet on it because it wasn't a good base blast we realized five minutes or I realized five minutes in and then it went on another ten minutes so I, mm. I put it up for patrons if they want to listen to it 
it's on deep fake pornography. Yeah. Mostly. Um, mostly. Maybe it'll go out publicly at some point, but for now it's, it's a patron thing and it'll, it'll stay there for the foreseeable future. It didn't make a, it, I think my summary here was nice. I said that uh, apparently I need to have a very specific subject in mind before I attempt to blast someone. Otherwise, <laughs> what should be a cool five to eight minute burst of info turns into a 15 minute meandering conversation. Right. <laughs> it's a difference between a blast and a podcast. Yeah, I came to you with a, with a query, not a, uh, not a piece of information. Right, yeah. So finally, this brings us to, did you want to talk about the culture war shit? Um, I, I mean, we don't have to do culture war stuff if you don't want to. Uh, I could go either way. I think... I think it's kind of self-evident. I think so too. I, and okay. the thing is, I feel like it's non, I, I'm only have any reluctance here because I get the impression this is a charged issue, but I can't for the life of me really see why. Maybe that's worth talking about and we can just put this up non-publicly if it's that inflammatory. But it's, it's just kind of funny that people try to find, they try to identify the category with the nodes, I think. I think that's the error that's happening. We can leave maybe that last sentence about <laughs> categories and nodes. For anybody who wants to know about the culture worry aspects of of this, well, everybody knows the culture worry aspects of of these category posts. If anybody wants to know what me and Steven specifically were talking about in regards to the hot current culture war topics, you have to become a patron. It's funny because like I, I'm only just barely like tangentially online enough to know that this is the thing, and I, if if I didn't, then I would have no idea why this is a problem. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, you know. I, I get it. It's politically uh, salient as well. So that's another big part of it too. People get mind yeah. killed over it. So, um, yep. but next time we've got two little more or less wrong posts. We've got how an algorithm feels from the inside and disputing definitions. Excellent. That, that first one is another big famous one. I know it's great. We're running into a bunch of them right now. Good streak of them. You know, I feel like, I feel like that way every third episode of the very minimum. And it just, okay. th- then it just reminds me, I was like, Oh, I guess a lot of these are really good actually. All <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> Just nonstop bangers. Yep. There's a reason to birth the movement. That's right. All right. Well, whose turn is it to thank a patron? Uh, did we not do that during the episode? No, no, we did not. Okay. For for future historical context, we recorded like three, I don't know, six weeks worth of episodes within a four day period. So yeah. everything is kind of uh, shaken to my head. So I'll grab this one and give a huge shout out to Michael Morrison. Michael Morrison. Thank you. You brought you scene to us. I hope you found it valuable, and we appreciate your support. Thank you very much. And if anyone else definitely is do. interested, they can find us on Patreon. They can uh, leave us reviews on the Apple, or I guess on your podcast store, wherever you find those. And uh, we've got the website, too, thebeijingconspiracy.com. Indeed we do. Cool. See you all in two weeks. Sounds good. Bye.